Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. The U.S. Supreme Court has dealt a victory to people in Flint, Michigan, who are seeking damages for the city's contaminated drinking water. The court's action last week clears a barrier that residents face trying to sue government officials. But as Michigan Radio's Steve Carmody reports, some in Flint fear they are still a long way from getting compensation. I'm standing next to the Flint River. That sound you hear is the dingy brown water rolling over a former dam, creating a frothy foam that's floating further downstream. In 2014, state officials decided to use this murky water as Flint's drinking water source. But the water wasn't properly treated, releasing lead and other contaminants into Flint's tap water. Flint resident Margaret Wesley blames the drinking water switch for the death of her adult daughter, Mary. They knew. I go to my grave believing they knew what was in that water, the bacteria. Wesley is one of more than 30,000 Flint residents who filed lawsuits against the city and state regulators. They're seeking compensation for medical expenses, property damage, and in some cases, deaths tied to the Flint water crisis. Lawyers for the government officials being sued had claimed they're protected by something called qualified immunity, which is a legal doctrine shielding government officials. But last week, the U.S. Supreme Court let a lower court ruling stand that government officials cannot claim immunity in this case. Attorney Michael Pitt is co-lead counsel on the class action lawsuit for Flint victims. We hope that it's going to provide justice not only for the people of Flint, but for other people, especially communities of color and impoverished areas where they become the victims of environmental injustice. But since the Supreme Court's decision only directly affects the U.S. Sixth Circuit, it's unclear if it would apply to other federal lawsuits. Even so, the ruling is getting attention. Good morning again. We're going to get started here with our local water panel. This past weekend, more than 100 drinking water activists, some from as far away as Kenya and Guatemala, met at a century-old church in Detroit. 
To them, the Supreme Court's decision was welcome news. This is give, gives me so much hope. That's Anthony Diaz, co-founder of New Jersey's Newark Water Coalition. His group is dealing with that city's issues over lead-contaminated water. He suspects some government officials have been less responsive in part because they didn't fear legal actions against them personally. But now they know that they don't have that freedom to fall back on. It's going to make them nervous. It's going to make them scared. And now we can apply pressure to get the things that we want. For Flint residents seeking resolution, civil claims now seem to be the best path. Initially, 15 state and city officials were indicted on criminal charges ranging from neglect of duty to involuntary manslaughter. But prosecutors cut deals with seven defendants and last year dropped charges against the rest. It remains unclear if anyone will ever face trial for the Flint water crisis. And that frustrates Flint resident Clara McClinton. The people in Flint, in terms of justice, holding people accountable and compensation, we are batting zero. Unless a settlement is reached, it's likely a trial on the damage claims won't take place for at least another year. Meanwhile, April marks six years since Flint's water source was switched. In the years since the crisis, Flint's water quality has improved and is now comparable to other cities. But many here still don't trust that the water flowing through their taps is safe to drink. For NPR News, I'm Steve Carmody in Flint, Michigan. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, January 30th, 2020. So I have been told this is our weekly book club session number four, Harriet A. Washington, A Terrible Thing to Waste. Uh, We are picking up chapter three, jobs or health. That's the subsection uh, that we'll start off at in chapter three. The audio segment that we heard at the beginning, that was just uh, literally uh, from a couple days ago, uh, where they're still talking about the situation, chemical and biological warfare uh, in Flint, Michigan, uh, and talking about some of the options that the victims have, even though. Still not really sure uh, if the water is safe to drink. Still not really sure if this is on par with what white people, even white people in a trailer park uh, would have to drink. Uh, But that report just came out from uh, this week. And again, Flint, Newark, lots of areas where non-white people, particularly black people live, have the same types of problems. We will go ahead and get started. Again, Harriet A. Washington, A Terrible Thing to Waste, starting in Chapter 3, Context of White Supremacy. This is audio segment number one. Jobs or health? Some areas, like Houston, have no zoning laws to protect residents from sharing their space and air with toxic industrial effluents. Other municipalities especially but hardly limited to poor southern towns and cities, accept these undesirable industries because they want the jobs and the tax base they bring with them. Politicians and industries often seek to justify the unpleasant and dangerous presence of polluting companies by arguing that they provide jobs that give otherwise unemployed poor residents of color better lives. A dirty, even hazardous job in a polluting industry they imply, is better than no job at all. 
But studies such as a 2011 report in Occupational and Environmental Medicine have dismantled this argument. In addition to the direct exposures that can cost workers and their families their health and lives, the OEM study of 7,000 workers documented that such jobs destroy mental health as well. People in poor-quality jobs where high demands are coupled to low autonomy and rewards are out of sync with effort suffer far worse mental health from the malignant stress than do the unemployed. Moreover, polls show that these communities are unwilling to trade jobs for unhealthy environments. African Americans support clean energy, clean jobs, and clean power plants, with 83% support in favor of setting limits on carbon pollution from coal and gas-fired power plants in concert with the clean power plant standards that the Environmental Protection Agency finalized in August, concluded a 2015 Clean Technica poll. Nonetheless, Bullard's publications continue to document how these disparate racial exposures have grown rather than abated. And Marcus Franklin, author of the Fumes Across the Fence Line report, agrees. There's a growing threat faced by fence line communities. Aniston Apocalypse. PCBs are unleashed on a company town. Shirley Baker, a nurse, deftly ties on a surgical mask before opening the door. But she's not striding into the operating room. She is about to mow her lawn, which is ringed by a high chain-link fence festooned with biohazard signs. Baker lives in Anniston, Alabama, 63 miles from Birmingham. Her city of 24,000 is 52% African American. But mostly it's the city's black residents who inhabit the neighborhoods that have fallen into decay, wrought by widespread pollution. These form a patchwork quilt of moribund communities and biological dead zones where nothing grows. Behind some doors, the unemployed fight cancer, paralysis, memory loss, and a bewildering array of poorly characterized diseases. Subdued children play, eerily quiet, against a backdrop of toxic lawns, oily creeks, tainted vegetation, and sear trees. Other neighborhoods are already dead. Vegetation has overtaken blocks of abandoned houses, with streetlights gone permanently dark, empty churches, and, always, the biohazard signs. Everywhere in Anniston, worried parents shoo children from parks and playgrounds. Many background creeks run blood red. Homeowners have forsaken their poisoned gardens to grow greens in sterile plastic buckets. Children here seem slower and sicker than most, says Shirley's husband David, whose own brother died at 16 after years of illness. His daughter displays an assortment of behavior problems and has been relegated to special education classes. A ten-year-old girl down the street has uterine cancer, he says, and he repeatedly assured me that several children nearby have been born with two brains. I wonder whether he means that they were born without a normally developed corpus callosum, which separates the brain's hemispheres, but I can't find out. Their parents don't return my phone calls. For many Americans, a modern dread of contamination has been distilled into cathartic post-apocalyptic film fare 
such as 28 Days Later, Right at Your Door, or Dawn of the Dead, that feature poisoned lands and communities thronged with those so degraded by infection and environmental exposures that they have lost their intelligence and even their humanity. Confronting these cinematic horrors allows us to share a benign frisson of fear, secure in the knowledge that when the lights come up, we'll emerge into normalcy. But for Aniston, the apocalypse is all too real, and for most, inescapable. Once, from 1929 to 1971, Aniston was a company town. First, the Swan Chemical Company produced polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, there. Then, Monsanto Industrial Chemicals took over the plant in 1935. The $20 billion corporation, Monsanto, which brought the world the sweeteners saccharin and aspartame, boasts versatile chemical production, a checkered past, and a highly controversial present. Monsanto has produced synthetic fibers, plastics, including polystyrenes, pesticides, and agrochemical products. It has also acquired many chemical and electronics companies that make products as varied as aspirin and light-emitting diodes, LEDs. Just last year, it merged with the equally rich and powerful Bayer Corporation. Monsanto first devised or marketed DDT, dioxin, 2378-tetrachlorodibenzodioxin, TCDD, 2,4-D, 2,4-5-T PCBs, other halogenated hydrocarbons that are carcinogenic even in small doses, and dioxins. In 1960, an agricultural division was established, which trafficked in the hazardous defoliant Agent Orange, as well as the controversial recombinant bovine somatrophin hormones used to increase the milk yields of cows. In 1969, the plant was Aniston's major employer, discharging 250 pounds of PCBs into Snow Creek, at the heart of the city's black residential community, every day. PCBs are brain thieves that erode the structures and functioning of the brain and nervous system, and they are also endocrine disruptors that impede the healthy physical and mental development that is normally guided by hormones. Refer to Chapter 4. Although the company and its apologists insisted that one can tolerate significant amounts without ill effects, this reassurance rang hollow in Aniston neighborhoods that found themselves suddenly battling a legion of ailments, from cancers to memory loss, confusion, and a slew of other intellectual problems. Children's behavioral problems snowballed in Aniston, along with rates of attention deficit disorder and poor school performance. The news media often focused their outrage on cancer clusters and visibly crippling lung and mobility ailments caused by PCBs. But PCBs' most persistent legacy is the invisible harm they wreak on the brains of the young. Industry and some media accounts downplay small exposures as innocuous, claiming that 50 bathtubs full of PCBs at low concentration is required to do harm. But this has not been proven. In reality, extremely small amounts of PCBs 
harm the developing nervous systems of fetuses and children. Even very low concentrations are harmful for immature brains during their critical windows of development. In 2000, researchers calculated that a PCB concentration of just 5 parts per billion in a pregnant mother's blood can have adverse effects on a developing fetal brain, giving rise to attention and IQ deficits that appear permanent. Five parts per billion is equivalent to one drop in 118 bathtubs full of water. Aniston Apocalypse David Baker, Shirley's husband, is one of many who have borne witness to the painful toll of PCB poisoning. Growing up, he and his brother Terry would play in the neighboring woods and rivers, exploring, shooting arrows, and splashing in creeks that ran with water containing PCBs. But their bond was severed in 1970, when Terry sickened dramatically and died of a spectrum of diseases that are usually associated with aging, lung cancer, hardening of the arteries, and a brain tumor. He was 16 years old. Denise Chandler, 46, had also had a front-row seat to death caused by reckless pollution. She, too, regularly played with her brother in one of the two neighborhoods' chemical-imbued ditches. We floated our little boats in it and waded in it, but we didn't know it was loaded with PCBs, she recalled. Decades later, when they were finally tested, they discovered that they both had high blood PCB levels. She suffers from sarcoidosis, an autoimmune disease characterized by widespread tissue inflammation. Her brother suffered myriad health problems before he died of kidney failure at age 40. But their problems are more than physical. Two of Chandler's three children were diagnosed with learning disorders. From 1935 until 1971, without warning its neighbors, Monsanto disposed of tens of thousands of pounds of PCBs by dumping them into creeks or burying them in and around Aniston. But industry wasn't the only source of Aniston's chemical exposures. In 1917, the military established Fort McClellan there, and the U.S. Army manufactured and trained heavily with them from World War I until its closure in 1999. Despite being saturated with environmental poisons, Aniston became an icon of normalcy when it was named the All-American City in 1978. The very next year, Snow Creek began to run red heightening residents' suspicions about the effects of chemical exposures in their communities. In 1996, one of the dumps started leaking. It was then that residents began learning the extent of their contamination. Years of unchecked chemical dumping had utterly poisoned the lands of Aniston's black neighborhoods. A former union organizer, David Baker, took action. Channeling the pain of his brother's loss, into ensuring that the citizens of Aniston receive justice. He created Community Against Pollution in 1998 to force the chemical companies to clean up the contamination and compensate those harmed by it. At his urging, the EPA tested Aniston's soil and water as well as the blood of its residents. It was alarmed to find that the blood of Aniston's townspeople had the highest recorded levels of PCBs 
in the nation. But their complaints drew a desultory response from industry. So Baker organized residents, who filed a number of lawsuits against the unresponsive army and against Monsanto. As the evidence of Aniston's poisoning mounted, Monsanto shed its industrial chemical fibers business into a separate company called Solutia. It also began trying to buy up heavily tainted properties, including a local church. This further fueled residents' suspicions that despite its denials, the company had long known how dangerous its dumped chemicals were. They were right. In 1966, Monsanto had hired the late Mississippi State University professor Denzel Ferguson to investigate the health effects of its PCB pollution in Aniston. When Ferguson's team of biologists lowered bluegill fish into the city's creeks to monitor the water's health effects, all 25 fish died within three and a half minutes. It was like dunking the fish in battery acid, one team member told the Washington Post. I've never seen anything like it in my life, said another. Yet Monsanto ignored the biologists' urgings to warn residents and clean up the waters. Monsanto did respond with alacrity to concerns about the fiendish toxicity of PCBs voiced by Swedish scientists the very next year. A Monsanto official wrote Emmett Kelly, the company's medical director, beseeching him, Please let me know if there is anything I can do so that we may make sure our business is not affected by this evil publicity. In 1979, Monsanto closed the Aniston Chemical Factory. Wake-up call In 2002, the people of Aniston suddenly learned from a 60 Minutes investigation that theirs was one of the most toxic cities in the nation. PCBs are widely disseminated in industry products, so widely, in fact, that the average American has PCB blood levels of two parts per billion. PPB. But the mostly black victims of Aniston suffered huge exposures. Howard Frumkin, M.D., told me, Aniston has the highest levels of PCB exposure of any town in America, of any town that I've ever heard of. David Baker has PCB blood levels of 341 PPB. Most of the residents know their levels. As in most toxic communities, the PCBs in Aniston were not acting alone. Aniston is blanketed by a mixture of asbestos, arsenic, and other unstudied chemicals. Even if their effects have been known, mixtures of chemical exposures can act in an unexpected manner. One chemical might mute or potentiate the effects of others in an additive or even a synergistic manner. Lead, cadmium, arsenic, and mercury are pollutants that are commonly found together, and all have long-lasting effects on the brain. According to a 2016 study published in Environmental Toxicology Pharmacology, the metals share many common pathways for causing cognitive dysfunction, and all bind to a particular receptor which makes their effects synergistic. Harmful exposure to the mixture results in greater poisoning than the added effect of poisoning by each of its members. Aniston residents filed class action suits against Monsanto Chemical, alleging that it had knowingly dumped PCBs into the local water supply for decades. 
Like the Anniston Army Depot, Redstone Arsenal, and other industries, Monsanto had also exposed residents to asbestos, which can cause diseases like the deadly lung cancer, mesothelioma. Residents settled a case against the company in April 2001 for $43 million. And in 2003, a jury determined that the Aniston-Monsanto plant had imbued Aniston with PCBs. Monsanto and Solutia agreed to pay $600 million to settle the claims, but Solutia declared bankruptcy that very year. Its 40-year monopoly on PCBs left Monsanto with a long history of injury and abandonment that was revealed to the world when incriminating Monsanto documents were posted on the Chemical Industry Archive website as a result of the lawsuits. The documents indicate that Monsanto long knew of the severe damage it caused by dumping millions of pounds of PCBs into Aniston for four decades. In 2003, the Department of Defense began destroying the chemical weapon stockpile, including nerve gas, stored at the Aniston Army Depot. Most of the settlement funds went to lawyers and cleanup efforts, leaving the people of Aniston unemployed, impoverished, sick, mentally hobbled, and in many cases, dying. They were unable to sell their homes and flee. The Army and EPA had failed to protect them, and they were unsure where to turn next. David Baker, now the Executive Director of Community Against Pollution, was sure of one thing. They needed a powerful champion. He found one, Johnny Cochran. Baker approached Cochran, who was fresh from securing O.J. Simpson's not-guilty verdict, and after hearing stories of Aniston's poisoning and rampant illness, Cochran agreed to help them obtain compensation for their property losses and a health clinic to address their cancer, liver disease, and mental problems. As he denounced the failure of the government to protect Aniston residents, Cochran declared, as I noted in this book's introduction, there is always some study, and they'll study it to death. Then 30 years later, you find out it's bad for you. We know it's bad for us right now. Cochran's class action suit procured the largest settlement ever won in the United States. The victims of Aniston won $300 million from Monsanto, its subsidiary Solutia, Pfizer, and other firms, none of whom admitted any wrongdoing. $50 million was reserved for a health clinic to address the medical aftermath of Aniston's poisoning. Aniston's Aftermath The celebration was short-lived. About 47% of the settlement, some $142 million, went to the 18,447 plaintiffs. Adults received an average of $9,000 each, and each child $2,000 an absurdly low amount, considering that each faces a lifetime of disability, including reductions in IQ that erode earning ability. With the exception of the portion of the settlement set aside to fund the health clinic, the rest of the money went to pay the lawyers. The townspeople's expectation of life-altering financial compensation evaporated, and most remained trapped in their tainted homes. The health clinic ran out of funds and closed in 2017.
In comparison, victims of Japan's Minimata poisoning, caused by the release of methylmercury from the Chiso Corporation's chemical factory from 1932 to 1968, reaped $1 billion in compensation, an average of $20,000 per person. Today, Aniston's community meetings are thronged with the sick, who tend to introduce themselves by taking off their sky-high PCB levels and bestiary of diseases. Even the relatively young compare their cancers and frailties. Baker speaks of filing another lawsuit, but without his old fervor. He has received anonymous death threats from neighbors who felt betrayed by their low compensation from the earlier settlement. Even an outsider can see that their solidarity is diminished. Monsanto did a job on this city, summarizes Opal Scruggs, 65, who, like everyone else in her neighborhood, has elevated blood levels of PCBs. They thought we were stupid and illiterate people, so nobody would notice what happens to us. Arsenic and Old Waste Around 1962, the city of Fort Myers, Florida, began searching for land to buy in its historically black Dunbar community, whose racial demographic was long maintained by de jure and later de facto segregation. Residents and other property owners were asked to sell their lots for municipal purposes. The city said it would use the purchased property to build affordable housing in a development called Homarama. Although nothing was ever built, the name stuck. Instead, the city dumped waste from its water treatment plant in the site's ponds and grounds, beginning with 25,000 cubic yards of sludge in pits extending deeper than the water table. The site bore no identifying signs, was unfenced, and was surrounded by African-American families whose numbers soon grew explosively in a building boom. All this time, we bathed in that water. We cooked in that water. Kids played in that water. We played cops and robbers in there. Hide and seek, built clubhouses and played in the trees, said Shannon Reed, one of a family of 14 who lived in Dunbar during the 1970s. In certain spots, it was like soft clay. We called it orange slide because it was squishy and slimy. Curtis Sheard also grew up near the dump in Dunbar, playing with his friends in the orange slide. Milton Shorty Johnson recalls that land across the street from his home had what they called quicksand, lime sludge that had been dumped there by Fort Myers in the 1960s. A 2006 EPA official's photo of a child's toy atop the dirt beneath which arsenic-laden sludge festered attests to the fact that children still played at the contaminated Homarama site, which still bore no fencing or warning signs. Only in 2017 did the city finally erect a handful of no-trespassing signs. But the residents did not learn until 2007 that arsenic and other toxic substances had been dumped regularly in Homarama, the heart of their community, for nearly five decades. Ten micrograms per liter is the acceptable standard for arsenic in drinking water. But levels on some parts of the property have ranged from 11 to 22 micrograms per liter, 
more than twice the limit. In 2012, tests showed that the toxic sludge dump exceeded the EPA safety levels by as much as five times. Arsenic is a human carcinogen, and people are exposed via many industrial routes, like coal-burning factories and mines. Some people are exposed by ingesting soil or by eating unwashed produce. People affected with pica, a condition that makes one crave non-food items like dirt or chalk, are also susceptible. Arsenic is even a component of tobacco smoke. But exposure most often comes from tainted water, as it did in Dunbar. Sherrod, who ran for mayor in 2015, speaks for many when he decries the lack of transparency. We have a waterline break, and the city is responsible to notify the public in 48 hours, but no one notified the Dunbar community of the toxic sludge. There's something I wasn't aware of happening in my own backyard. Dunbar's Jamar Hillards agreed in an interview for WINK News. Is this happening in every neighborhood? No. It just seems like the low to moderate income black, brown people constantly get the short end of the stick, Dunbar resident Crystal Johnson said. Whatever the garbage and junk, whatever they don't want, they give to Dunbar, Johnson said. Those people, they didn't care what happened out here in Dunbar, says retired truck hauler Clarence Pappy Mitchell, who worked for the city of Fort Myers in the early 1960s and often dumped toxic sludge in the Dunbar section. This was a dumping area. Mitchell recalls that when a resident asked for coquina shells to harden the neighborhood's dirt roads, Mitchell's supervisor responded, Hell, ain't nobody live out there but a bunch of niggers. Take a load of sand instead. If you're tempted to believe that such sentiments died with racial segregation, reflect that segregation has never ended. In fact, it has worsened since the time Mitchell recalls, thanks to the widening adoption of conservative policies. According to Professor David R. Williams, if there has been any decline in segregation, this has had no impact on the very high percentage of black census tracts. This residential isolation of most African Americans, along with the fact that the concentration of urban poverty remains so high, means that racial parity could be achieved only if 66% of the black population moved to non-black areas. Economists call this extreme level of segregation hyper-segregation. A study of the 171 largest cities in the United States concluded that there is not even one city where whites live under equal conditions with blacks. And the worst urban context in which whites reside, averse Williams, is better than the average living conditions of blacks. One of America's best-kept secrets is how residential segregation is the secret source that creates inequality in the United States. Its actions suggest that the city of Fort Myers knew how dangerous the sludge was. In 1994, they tried to sell the polluted land to Habitat for Humanity. In 2001, they tried to say it had no sludge. The city of Fort Myers' attempts to pass off the toxic Homorama site in Dunbar go back farther than officials have publicly said, wrote Patricia Bournes in the news press. In 2002, 
the city asked for a site assessment to provide liability protection against any hazardous waste cleanup. Fort Myers then declared that no sludge existed at the site, but the assessor, Steve Hilficker, insists he had not given the site a clean bill of health. In a videotaped interview, Hilficker qualifies that his was only a preliminary assessment. He went on to say, We did not identify anything on the ground surface, but subsurface testing would be necessary, and cleanup would indeed be needed to excavate and properly dispose of material. The children who once played in the pond every day are now middle-aged and worried. They demand answers. When I spoke with Tangela Rogers, she asked, This coming out now? After forty years? How many lives has it affected? Why dump it here, in our neighborhood? Testing in 2008 showed unacceptably high arsenic levels, but regular groundwater testing was delayed for two years because of municipal foot-dragging, according to the Department of Environmental Protection, DEP. Approximately 700 days elapsed without a written response to our inquiry by the responsible party, the city. In 2017, Fort Myers renewed its denials when the mayor claimed, I see no reason for residents to be concerned. There's no evidence that they should be concerned. But that year, the city finally erected a handful of no trespassing signs at the site. Dunbar native Almeida Jones says she still sees children playing in the vacant lot and that the city needs to clean it up. It's not good for your health. She's right. As the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences notes, arsenic in drinking water is a significant and well-established environmental cause of cancer. But less well-known is the catalog of arsenic's neurological effects, which have been unearthed by scientists around the world. Arsenic is able to invade the developing brain where its effects are toxic. Not only does the blood-brain barrier, BBB, whose function is to shield the brain from harmful exposures, fail to keep it out, arsenic itself can weaken and disrupt it. In animal models, perinatal arsenic exposure shrinks the brain, reducing the numbers of neurons as it distorts the activity of neurotransmitters. Fifteen epidemiological studies of humans indicate that early exposure is associated with lower intelligence and reduced memory. Even worse, exposures below the allowable limits trigger these brain effects. Some neurocognitive consequences become apparent only later in life, and exposures to other chemicals and the timing of the exposure all seem to affect the intellectual consequences. As is often the case, infants and children seem more vulnerable, probably because of their relatively greater consumption of food and water. However, arsenic is not excreted in breast milk, so breastfeeding may offer some protection by replacing the consumption of tainted water and food. The Federal Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry determined that acute toxic exposures to inorganic arsenic have been shown to lead to emotional lability and memory loss. Low-level and chronic exposure to arsenic is also associated with serious effects on intellectual function across a broad age range, 
according to about 20 studies conducted around the globe. These investigations used a wide range of cognitive tests, about 50, including variants of the Raven-Colored Progressive Matrices Test, Wexler Intelligence Scale, and the dsm 4 Seventeen epidemiological studies assessed for neurocognitive or behavioral outcomes, and of these, 15 showed neurocognitive or intellectual deficits associated with arsenic exposure, while two failed to show these effects. A meta-analysis of arsenic-exposed children also indicated intelligence deficits. The overall mean IQ score of children who lived in arsenic-exposed areas was more than six points lower than that of unexposed children. Adolescents who had been exposed to arsenic-contaminated water early in life performed more poorly in three of four neurobehavioral tests compared with unexposed controls. Even the elderly suffer from long-term exposure to arsenic. A study of a geriatric population showed that long-term low-level arsenic exposure even at levels below the current safety guidelines, 10 micrograms per liter in adults, was significantly associated with poor global cognition, diminished visuospatial skills, reduced language, slower processing speed, impaired executive functioning, and diminished short-term memory. One of these elderly people is Almeida Jones's sickly brother, whom she cares for. She worries that his health woes may be tied to arsenic exposure from the smelly water in his backyard that has been gushing, coming out of the ground. They, city of Fort Myers, must take care of it. Why don't Dunbar residents simply move? Like most denizens of fence-line neighborhoods, they are financially trapped by the disappearance of jobs as local industry flees in the wake of the toxic exposure lawsuits and revelations. Moreover, their houses won't sell. No one wants to live on a toxic waste site, summarized Aniston activist David Baker. Their bank is even refusing to let Dunbar homeowners, Tabitha Blanks, and her husband refinance their house, because arsenic showed up in the groundwater as recently as 2012. The appraiser told her the poisoned groundwater affects the value and ability to refinance for anyone within 3,000 feet of the site. If you know there's toxic stuff near the property that you're looking at, you're not going to buy it, Blanks said. That's just evident. What do you do? We're kind of stuck in a hard place right now. Residents of heavily African-American and Hispanic communities like Dunbar, Anniston, Alabama, and East Chicago, Indiana, have grown up breathing noxious air. Many suffer physical damage, including cancer, diabetes, and neurological impairments that lands them in wheelchairs or nursing homes. But even banned toxins can devastate communities, as the people of Triana, Alabama know. Triana, Alabama this is your brain on pesticides. Visionary biologist Rachel Carson published Silent Spring in 1962. At once rigorous, powerful, and poetic, Carson's warning of a future in which nature stands in ruins, depleted beyond her ability to renew herself, 
struck a deep national chord. Carson warned specifically of overusing chemicals like the pesticide DDT, which she blamed for the waning of species like the double-crested cormorant, the herring gull, and even America's iconic bald eagle. The book drew critical vitriol from pesticide makers and their scientists, but Carson had portrayed the deadly persistence of human-made poisons in a manner that stoked the heart of America's environmental conscience. DDT was banned in the book's aftermath around 1970, and for most of the nation, Silent Spring was a disquieting wake-up call. But for the people of Triana, Alabama, 86% of them black, it was already too late. Today, Triana is a town of 500 on Alabama's northern border near Huntsville. And not only is it black, it is also poor, with a median annual income of under $10,000. But in the past, the Huntsville River softened the town's privation. Commercial fisherman Donald Malone recalls that he made $700 a week from fishing in the 1970s, and many other townspeople supplemented their income by selling fish. More importantly, most of the 1,178 people who then lived in Triana grew their own food and fished to fill their pantries. However, the fish were dying in large numbers, and in the 1980s, tests found the river to be tainted by high levels of DDT. Fish taken from the waterway harbored DDT in amounts as high as 200 parts per million ppm. 40 times the federal limit. DDT was still with them, and it is still with us today, because it does not break down naturally in the environment. It has persisted in the food chain, concentrated in animals, including edible fish. I was born and raised on the river, recalled Malone. We made our living off it, and that's been taken away from every commercial fisherman. Eating the fish from the river is now out of the question, and so is gardening for subsistence. DDT persists in the ground, rendering the food grown in contaminated soil poisonous. In fact, much of the community's rampant disease today is ascribed to DDT exposure, even though the pesticide was banned decades ago, in 1970. Because the Army owned Redstone Arsenal, the local facility where DDT had been manufactured, the EPA ordered it to clean up the river and test residents of Triana for DDT contamination. But the Army refused, pointing fingers at the nearby Olin plant. The EPA asked the Justice Department to force the Army to clean up the DDT. But the justices, in turn, washed their hands of the matter, denying that the Department had any power to force the fractious agencies to comply. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control studied the debility and illness in Triana's remaining 500 residents and found staggeringly high levels of DDT and polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, which are known to increase the risk of heart disease, stroke, and kidney problems. The bodies of Triana residents harbored thrice the DDT levels found in poisoned workers at DDT plants, but none of the tested Triana folk had ever worked in such plants. Although this major health threat to residents of Triana was discovered in 1978, the federal government did not act until five years later, 
after the mayor of Triana filed a class-action lawsuit in 1980. One 85-year-old resident, Felix Wynn, had 3,300 parts per billion of DDT in his blood. More DDT than has ever been found in any other human being. In 1980, Triana residents settled out of court with Olin for $19 million, $6.8 million of which paid legal fees, leaving each resident only about $2,000 annually for five years, money that is now long gone. The remaining $5 million went to address health care. DDT was so widely used that most Americans are still exposed to it. High blood levels of DDT or its metabolites are associated with neurodevelopmental problems in children. Because it persists in the soil, food, environment, and in our brains, Rutgers University scientists were able to measure DDT in their subjects' brains and correlate it with some disease patterns. They found that people with Alzheimer's have levels of DDT and its metabolites that are four times higher than their peers without Alzheimer's. However, the sick had more than high levels of DDT. They also shared a genetic predisposition, suggesting that interaction between DDT and the genes may be needed to develop the disease. Alzheimer's would not be the first pesticide neurological disease link. Pesticides have already been strongly implicated in Parkinson's disease. Other neurological diseases are also the product of interactions between genetic susceptibility and the environment making it very difficult for epidemiology to identify clear associations between an exposure and a disease, especially in nations like the United States, where a broad range of genetic susceptibility reigns. Organophosphate pesticides, such as the chlorpyrifos used widely in agriculture, on golf courses, and for mosquito control under the names Dursban and Lorsban, are neurotoxic. Prenatal exposure can lead to structural abnormalities of the brain, according to several studies. On November 6, 2018, this insecticide was approved in the United States and the EU on the basis of a toxicity test that has now been found to be faulty, writes Philippe Grandjean on his website, where the specific testing flaws are detailed. He adds that its residues cling to fruits and appear in the urine of children, even those living in countries that don't use the product. The United States had planned to gradually eliminate its use, but the Trump administration's EPA canceled this banishment, even though, notes Grandjean, a federal appeals court ordered the EPA to ban the pesticide due to the risks to brain development seen in studies of children. Tetrachloroethylene, also called TCE or perchloroethylene, is a widely used solvent in dry cleaning, paint, spot removers, and suede protectors. According to Neurological Teratology, early childhood exposure carries an increased risk of neurological and psychiatric problems. David C. Bellinger, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and professor in the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, calculates that pesticides alone cause a cumulative national IQ loss of 16.9 million points, and the largest portion of that loss, 5.7 million points, 
comes from prenatal exposure. This conversion of brain damage to IQ points gives us only a rough understanding of the damage, as Philippe Grandjean points out in Only One Chance, because chemicals vary in their effects on the brain. Some don't affect general intelligence, but instead erode specific elements of cognition. Methylmercury hampers memory. Lead shortens the attention span. The pesticides distort spatial perception. The polybrominated diphenyl ethers, PBDEs, used to render children's clothing and furniture flame-resistant, are also linked to cognitive and behavioral performance in school-age children. Quite a few other chemicals common in fence-line neighborhoods have been shown to poison the brain, including azides, carbon monoxide, cyanides, decaborane, diborane, fluorides, hydrogen phosphide, hydrogen sulfide, pentaborane, phosphine, and phosphorus. Toxic Reservations Poisoned Earth, Troubled Waters, and Lowered IQs In 2016, a national spotlight fell on the Dakota Access Pipeline, and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe soon became the most visible victim of the Trump administration's disastrous changes in environmental policy. When he reversed the Obama administration's decision to deny a permit to drill beneath the Missouri River, some wondered whether the $500,000 to $1 million Trump had invested in the pipeline provided motivation. Although a spokesperson claimed Trump had sold his shares, Kelsey Warren, chief executive of the pipeline's builder, Energy Transfer Partners, ETP, had donated $100,000 to Trump's presidential campaign. Trump appointed Scott Pruitt to head the Environmental Protection Agency despite his well-known hostility to the agency's agenda. Until his July 6, 2018 departure, protections for beleaguered fence-line communities seemed to be neglected in favor of multi-billion dollar oil and gas companies. From Pruitt's status as a climate change denier to his determination to eviscerate environmental protections, the EPA's new direction overshadows the government's actions pertaining to Standing Rock. ETP planned to complete the approximately 1,200-mile-long, $3.7 billion pipeline in order to carry 470,000 barrels of crude oil daily across four states. The pipeline will swell profit margins for oil companies, but the Standing Rock Sioux point out that it will also contaminate drinking water and desecrate sacred burial sites. They refuse to accept the pipeline's construction, and their statement of resistance reads in part, Americans know this pipeline was unfairly rerouted towards our nation and without our consent. Native Americans and their supporters, including the environmental activist group Greenpeace, have gathered in North Dakota camps to hold sacred ceremonies and to protect the Missouri River the only water source for the Standing Rock tribe. The news media have taken note with regular updates that bring unwanted attention to Native Americans threatened with environmental hazards. Trump's former law firm filed a complaint on behalf of ETP that characterized Greenpeace and other Sioux Nation supporters as wolf packs of corrupt NGOs. It deployed the RICO Act, 
typically used to facilitate organized crime prosecutions against them. But an ACLU friend of the court brief argued that the First Amendment prohibits companies from suing their critics out of existence. Even before the pipeline's completion, Sue fears materialized as it ruptured, spilling 84 gallons of oil in Tulare, South Dakota, south of the resistance camps. Eagle Mine Standing Rock is one of many skirmishes that have broken out between indigenous nations and the U.S. government over industrial wastes dumped on Native American reservations. Some tribal governments have accepted waste storage, even nuclear waste, or mining for the millions of dollars of income they bring to a demographic that suffers twice the poverty rate of the United States as a whole. Only external pressure, including pressure from the National Congress of American Indians, prevented the Skull Valley Band of Utah's Go-Shoot tribe from committing their land for the storage of spent nuclear fuel. The tribe's home is already surrounded by a chemical weapons depot, a military test site, and a facility for the production of magnesium. But the primary beneficiaries of coal mining and power plants on indigenous lands often are not the native tribes. In the case of the Black Mesa region of Arizona, indigenous home of the Diné, Navajo, and Hopi peoples, four of five people living on the affected Navajo site do not have running water. Their water aquifer has been tapped to supply the former coal slurry pipeline. Moreover, only half of those living on the Navajo and Hopi reservations have electricity, despite the fact that the power transmission lines cross the reservations to deliver electricity to the southwestern United States and California. These communities rely upon natural resources for survival and hold reverence for the earth and good stewardship of these resources as cultural pillars. This cultural mandate is threatened as Native American reservations have become the preferred sites of uranium and coal mines, leading to polluted waterways and tribal lands. One is the Eagle Mine, the nation's only primarily nickel and copper mine which is located on Michigan's Yellow Dog Plains and owned by London Mining Corporation. It began production in late 2014 and is expected to generate 360 million pounds of nickel, 295 million pounds of copper, and small amounts of platinum, palladium, silver, gold, and cobalt by 2022. A coalition that includes the Keweenaw Bay Indian Community and the National Wildlife Federation appealed the issuance of its mining permit and groundwater discharge documentation based on concerns about water contamination. Their fears have a compelling basis. The Eagle Mine uses the sulfide mining method, which extracts metals from sulfide ores. When these ores are crushed, the sulfides are exposed to air and water, catalyzing a reaction that produces highly caustic and toxic sulfuric acid. The acid drains into nearby waterways and groundwater, a phenomenon called acid mine drainage. When water sources become acidified, plants, fish, and other wildlife that have provided food for centuries are poisoned, and the people lose not only potable water, but the fruits of their treaty rights for hunting, fishing, and gathering. 
But the most direct environmental threat to cognition and IQ is posed by coal-fired plants, which release neurotoxic methylmercury. This is the form of mercury that most often causes brain and spinal cord damage, that reduces IQ and causes mental retardation as well as permanent motor dysfunction. We've known this for a long time. England's Industrial Revolution heightened workers' exposure to mercury's cognitive dangers, one of which was so familiar that it made its way into Victorian children's literature. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, a still popular escapist fantasy, features the Mad Hatter, whose condition was a genuine feature of British industrial life. English haberdashers used mercury to process wool into felt for hats, and hat makers who inhaled its volatile vapors suffered brain damage, memory loss, tremors, and loss of intelligence. This was compounded by psychological changes like irritability, low self-confidence, depression, apathy, and shyness. These signs and symptoms marked a disease that physicians called erethism mercurialis, and the public called Mad Hatter disease. Methylmercury is especially damaging to the developing brains of fetuses and young children, depending upon the amount and time of exposure. Most people are exposed by the consumption of mercury-contaminated seafood, like that which caused the devastating decades-long outbreak in Minamata City, Japan. The epidemic was caused by the release of methylmercury in the industrial wastewater from the Chiso Corporation's chemical factory from 1932 to 1968. Methylmercury bioaccumulated in shellfish and fish in Minimata Bay and the Shiranui Sea and was eaten by residents for 36 years while the government did nothing. People with Minimata disease suffered a movement disorder called ataxia, hand and feet numbness, muscle weakness, the loss of peripheral vision, and damaged hearing and speech. But the neurological damage could also be extreme, including insanity, paralysis, coma, and even death within weeks. Minimata disease also offers an example of the complex interplay between genetics and environmental poisoning, because a congenital form of the disease affects fetuses in the womb. In the United States, minority groups are most heavily affected by mercury poisoning. A few examples of the coal-fired plants in and near impoverished Native American reservations include the following. The Four Corners Steam Plant, one of the largest coal-fired generating stations in the United States, is located on Navajo land in Fruitland, New Mexico. The Peabody Western Coal Company and the Desert Rock Coal-Fired Plant are just two of the many coal-fired plants and strip mining operations in the Black Mesa region with approximately 21 billion tons of coal and a value of $100 billion. The Absaluka mine of southeastern Montana was extended into 3,660 acres of the neighboring Crow Reservation in 2008. Coal Strip Steam Plant, Montana's largest coal-fired power plant, sits on lands of the northern Cheyenne tribe, surrounded by five large strip mines. In 2012, the Associated Press analyzed EPA data and found that 10% of all U.S. power plants operate within 20 miles of reservation land. Moreover, 
Many of these 51 energy-generating centers are more than a half a century old and operate without protections for the 50 reservations they abut. Moreover, the EPA is considering reducing these meager protections. In February 2019, its acting administrator, Andrew Wheeler, indicated he will take steps to undo the Mercury and Air Toxics Standards, MATS, regulations that limit the mercury and other toxic effluents that plants are allowed to release into the air. Although most Native Americans live outside reservations, the wealth of coal-fired plants in and near impoverished Native American reservations with little or no access to health care preferentially assails the intelligence and IQ of this marginalized ethnic group. Unlike African Americans and Hispanics, Native Americans constitute a relatively small ethnic group, only 2% of the U.S. population. But we should remember that it is small because of centuries of genocide. Nonetheless, Native American lands are home to coal mining and coal plants that disproportionately subject indigenous people to the brain-damaging environmental hazards of the coal industry. In 2006, NYU School of Medicine professor Leonardo Trisandi and a team of other environmental health scientists calculated how much health damage can be attributed to mercury emissions from coal-fired power plants by analyzing mental retardation associated with methylmercury in all U.S. babies born in 2000. They then calculated how much is attributable to coal-fired power plants. The results? All human-generated exposures of methylmercury cause a lowering of IQ that results in 1,566 additional cases of mental retardation every year. This represents 3.2% of new cases of mental retardation in the United States, which has cost the nation $2 billion annually. Mercury emissions specifically from U.S. power plants cause 231 cases of mental retardation annually. In other words, one in every 200 cases of mental retardation in America is caused by emissions from power plants. These cases alone cost the country $289 million every year. But the real cost of mercury emitted from coal-fired power plants is its injury to the brains of American children particularly children on the reservation, whose risk is greatly magnified by their proximity to these toxic sites. Protecting the brains of these children entails far more than preventing exposure to emissions at home or school. Protection must begin in the womb, as the next chapter explains. Context of White Supremacy, that next chapter, Chapter 4, Prenatal Policies Protecting the Developing Brain Man <sighs> Gusty Renegade uh, That was the end of the first audio segment If you have questions, comments, thoughts On the first portion of the reading The number to dial 605-313-5164 the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like 
to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, I'm actually going to start with uh, an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. I'll start with an email <clears throat> from one of the folks who uh, wrote in investor uh, greetings, Gus. Uh, number one, the book silent spring by Rachel Carson racist suspect is often referenced as one of the most important books of the 20th century and as a catalyst for activism regarding environmental toxins. The book indicts the use of environmental toxins, particularly DDT and its effects on the environment, including humans and animals. I suspect that Miss Washington's well-researched work about the effects of environmental toxins on non-white people will never reach such a claim. Number two, Monsanto Corporation is referenced in the text. Monsanto Corporation has a long history of environmental terrorism. It was one of the makers of the Agent Orange. It was acquired by the German manufacturer Bayer, who is implicated in the Holocaust for slave labor camps. The name Monsanto was retired. Had some name changing in the book as well. Number three, I suspect that corporations, particularly those who manufacture hazardous materials, have environmental liability policies for potential lawsuits. I suspect they also have actuarial uh, actuarial people who calculate potential liabilities and factor that into the price instead of trying to make a safe product. Not surprisingly, in a global system of white supremacy, criminal convictions of the racist suspects who perpetrate these acts of terrorism rarely, if ever, occur. I think we started this here broadcast with a segment from just a few days ago within the last 48 hours where they ended the report saying oh yeah maybe they can file civil suits the victims in Flint, Michigan chemical and biological warfare uh, but they said that there were maybe a dozen folks who were going to be criminal, pro- criminally prosecuted they cut deals with the first seven, they dropped the charges against the rest doesn't look like anybody will ever face any sort of criminal conviction do any time in the clink for poisoning mostly black people in Flint, Michigan. What did he say? These convictions, criminal convictions of these racist suspects who perpetrate these acts of terrorism rarely, if ever, occur. Facts. Alrighty, we'll hit the phone line, see if folks have thoughts, questions they would like to share on the first portion of the reading. Harriet A. Washington, phenomenal scholarship. What can I say? Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Proceed. Greetings, Thomas in New York. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, Gus. Man, us sneakers don't have a chance, Gus. I don't know. I was thinking millions of whites are being affected by the same environmental racism that we're being affected by. Um, maybe more than blacks, even, um, just based off the demographics of the country. They, they so much more 
uh, outproportion us in their rate of people. And um, the places they live, all over the country, I mean, they, it's no way they're not being affected by this at um, a higher rate. However, the percentage, I mean, if you just was affecting 28 million blacks and 28 million whites, that's only a quarter of the white people. That's 70% of the blacks. So I think they're just playing the, the laws of averages here and saying, hey, listen, you know, we know we're getting much more of them and we're getting of ourselves. So, you know, just look the other ways. Take it. Um, 25 dead fish in minutes. They put the fish in the water to see, you know, to test the water. Um, minutes dead, you know, um, in Monsanto. Um, Monsanto, that's 90% of the corn, soy, and canola in the world that comes from their seeds, GMO. Um, they decide not to clean it up. I think it was called PCB. Um, you know, and, and just, let's put the black people there. Um, now, the key is, and what I've been learning in some of my um, studies recently, is that most of this stuff is insured. I'm quite sure Monsanto would have just had to put in a claim to get this cleaned up. It probably, I know they had to have insurance for it. I'm almost willing to guarantee it, which is probably why Johnny Cochran was able to get so much money. It was like the negligence was so, you know, just so much there. And, um, you know, I totally believe Johnny Cochran may have been murdered because um, we haven't had anybody try to do this stuff since. You know, they, they were all put on notice. Um, the orange slime, some kids playing in it, they dumped sludges of, sludge of arsenic in the pond, and then suddenly you have a building boom in that area, and it's all black people. I believe it was Fort Myers. Um, then they're still trying to sell the land you know, with the stuff, and then after trying to sell the land, they decide they're going to put up hazardous signs again. And, you know, the kids are still out in the same place playing, and it hasn't been proven that it's been totally clean yet. So um, I feel sorry for the blacks who live there because not only were they exposed all these years, then they can't even sell their homes. That's all the equity they probably put into their homes all these years. It's not. It's all worthless because who's going to want to live there? You know. Um. You know, just scientific um, racism. Um. Then again, the white supremacists give the IQ test um, to find out how well their poison is working. And they find arsenic does exactly what lead does. It lowers the brain capacity of the victims exposed to it, you know. So all by design, I'm quite sure they need they knew that way before the IQ test. That was just to see how well it worked. Uh, lastly, the DDT contamination. Uh, now, this is a weapon, guys, that's malaria pesticide. They use it all around the world when they're going into jungles and places. Um, the Army... Had, were the only people that could have got this for years. I mean, you couldn't just go to the store and buy this. So who else should have been forced to clean it up but the Army? And the judge had the nerve to say he can't make the Army do anything? Are you serious? Uh, I can't think of a more well-funded agency than the Army uh, in this country. Um, the black people had double the rate of DDT in their bodies than the people who worked at the plant suffered from DDT poisoning. So this became a part of them. Um, they, they became DDT immune. And then um, they take it off the hazardous spray list 
um, it was big news in New York. They were using it to spray for West Nile virus over by East Harlem in the Central Park, and that became a big deal not too long ago. Well, probably about 10 years ago now. But uh, And then um, down in Brazil, I mean, for that Olympics two years ago, they sprayed those people, that river, everything so much with that fake Zika virus that they created um, some superhuman mosquitoes that was biting people and making them come out with small heads, and we haven't seen any of this since, right? I mean, all created and staged by the media, sprayed the heck out of Brazil, and we already know that's all black people. I'm my line. Thank you, Josh. Much obliged, Thomas, in New York. Uh, I think Mr. Fuller, well, number one, the insurance, I'm absolutely sure. Uh, white people have, they they would insure the slave ships, so I'm sure they would be insured for whatever toxic sludge that they're going to dump around uh, wherever that they could, you know. Lloyd's, I think it is. Yeah, they got that. No problem. Insurance, that's, yeah. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have uh, commentary to share, lines should be open. Proceed. Right. While folks, if they're taking a moment to get their thoughts together, proceed. I'll go through a few of my notes while you're gathering. Uh, I will say for folks, if you live in the Seattle area, Portland area, other areas where uh, there's a very low population of black people, you probably do not have toxic sludge piled up. That's not to say it's not possible. It's just saying that you probably don't have as much of this. I know here in Seattle, you can't even get a plastic bag from the grocery store in Seattle much less toxic sludge. Now, they, they do have environmental poisons and all that. Whites toxify the environment worldwide. But, I mean, just it is enormously different. Like, thinking about the areas where she was talking about, they have fewer protections in areas, Anniston, Alabama, and places where it's going to be a lot of black people, where they don't have laws to try to protect themselves and that sort of thing. Matter, you can't even get a plastic straw in Seattle, much less a plastic bag. You can't even get a plastic spoon in some places. I was horrified. We went to get a vegan ice cream two summers ago and they had wooden spoons. I thought I was going to get a splinter. Anyway, greatest plantation, this hemisphere. Uh, Notes that I took specifically on chapter three. Um, I was going to start Dr. Bullard black male uh he wrote dumping and dixie or he's written many 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 books prolific author uh scientist about uh what is called environmental racism uh i was going to start he did an interview on democracy now right after the hurricane uh hurricane in uh houston and he was talking about this environmental racism lots of black people in houston i bet you can get all kinds of plastic bags and plastic straws in houston I was saying that they don't they don't have zoning laws to protect the citizens. So you can just dump and throw toxic sludge and whatever you're going to do. And he was saying with the hurricane, like, oh, man, that just dumped everything. Uh, and so he said that just exacerbated this interview. He said it much more eloquently with all the detail. That was what I wanted to start it with. But then, I, like I said, the uh, situation in Flint that happened. And I said, oh, man, that's right. Right on time with what we're talking about. So I changed my mind. But we will get Dr. Bullard next week. Uh, let's see. 
the line. I thought this was so consistent, so, so consistent. Um, she writes, although the company and its apologists insisted that one can tolerate significant amounts with ill effects, this reassurance rang hollow in Aniston neighborhoods that found themselves subtly battling a legion of ailments from cancers to memory loss, confusion, and a slew of other intellectual problems. Children's behavioral problems snowballed in Aniston along with rates of attention deficit disorder and poor school performance. Now the last, all of it's important, but the last portion of that paragraph really caught my attention. I don't have children, but I mean, with all the focus on school to prison pipeline and unruly black children and they're undisciplined and we got to suspend them and we need officer slam because the, you know, little black girls won't put their phone away and the little black boys are selling crack and, you know, ready to rape everybody. Wow. Like, the environmental racism by chemical biological warfare that's just another form of white supremacy terrorism that this is so bad and the effects of it in terms of brain damage that it can cause all of these other problems and then they just blame that on you and say oh you don't know how to clean your house we need to get you lessons on using spick and span or black children are just super predators or you won't put your phone down it's oh man my brain hasn't even been given a chance to develop because you've deliberately dumped all these chemicals where we live and then just blame us for it. I mean that the implications of that just for the children stultifying. She continues, she says, and just talking even to pause with that. Oh, it's right here. She's in 2000 researchers calculated that a PCB concentration of just five parts per billion in a pregnant mother's blood can have adverse effects on a developing fetal brain, giving rise to attention to attention and IQ deficits that appear permanent. Five parts per billion is equivalent to one drop in 118 bathtubs full of water. That's brilliance of the scholar uh, of Harriet A. Washington's scholarship where you can uh, quantify what we're talking about. One drop, 118 bathtubs full of water. That was what I was going to say. I don't have children. I have been around. Uh, mothers, new mothers who have very young children and that's one thing that they will point out all the time children are so much more sensitive than adults, adults are very sensitive too, but children are super sensitive like uh, you might not even know that your water is not very high quality because you can go take a bath in it. And I mean, maybe it's probably impacting you too, or you, you know, might see that you have a few bumps or what have you and, you know, just kind of dismiss it. But with children, like, oh man, like it can make them totally break out and, you know, have a huge impact because they are so much more sensitive. And I suspect scientific racists they understand it. That's why she talked about before the children having the lead pain and all of that and, and the cumulative and permanent damage that it can do all of this and thinking about, that's why I said it's so much to think about. You think about having children. Uh, can we get in an environment in a global cesspool? That's what Dr. Kanban uh, calls it. Can we get to an environment that is, you know, as safe as possible where we're not going to be poisoned uh, where we can actually drink the water, we can actually take a bath in the water. Heaven forbid, if we have to drink it, maybe we can get a filter. We actually would live 
uh, and not get brain damage from drinking the water. Uh, just little things like that that you would have to think about having children. Can we try to live in an area where we could actually grow something in the ground that wouldn't kill us if we ate it? Can we try to live someplace where we could go fish and actually eat what we catch if we wanted without thinking, oh my God, I'm going to grow another eyeball? Lots to think about in terms of having offspring in a system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. Next. They sell when she actually has pictures uh, in the book. If you have the hard copy, she has pictures of some of the places in Anniston, Alabama that she's uh, talking about. She has one of the depot that stored all of these toxic industrial chemicals. Uh, she says that is urging the EPA tested Anniston's soil and water as well as the blood of its residents. It was alarmed to find that the blood of Anniston's townspeople had the highest recorded levels of PCBs in the nation. I think that at least for me goes directly to Thomas in New York's point about oh yeah certainly there will be some white people I'm sure they got a lot of Seattle that is contaminated they have poor quality air here frequently they have a lot of traffic and such uh, but that notwithstanding it's not going to be Aniston a whole lot of white people might get you know toxins dumped on them dump some DDT on them too they said uh, it's widespread throughout the country but we know this is going to be substantially more what they call disparate impact for the Negros. We already know that. And they make that so clear. They make that so clear throughout the text. The Flint situation we already know. It's going to be way more intense. Like we're dumping barrels. I'm going to get a barrel of, of toxic waste to dump over there in Niggerville right now. That's what they call it in uh, the sundown towns. I'm going to do it right now. We already know that's dumping ground. Find any waste that I can. Garbage town. Find where the colors are and that's what we're going to dump. So we already know it's going to be like this consistently expectedly worldwide uh, let's see next oh this is what I said Thomas in New York mentioned it uh, we had the or the caller that wrote in investor that wrote in when he talked about the name change uh, where Monsanto and Bayer and then they just switched the names around they retire the name Monsanto Monsanto shed its industrial chemical fires business into a separate companies called Solutia say they do the same. They, oh no, this is this is not Monsanto. We're not Philly. This is Solutia. When <laughs> they put some wacky name on it, we're about problem solving. Not at all. We're about chemical and biological warfare. It also began trying to buy up heavily tainted properties, including a local church. This further fueled residents' suspicions that, despite its denials, the company had long known how dangerous its dumped chemicals were. They were right. In 1966, Monsanto had hired the late Mississippi State University professor Denzel Ferguson to investigate health effects of its PCB pollution in Anniston when Ferguson's team of biologists lowered bluegill fish into the city's creeks to monitor the water's health effects. All 25 fish died within three and a half minutes. This is in the Washington Post. Yet Monsanto ignored the biologists urging to warn residents and clean up the waters. This is what I mean when I say white people are not ignorant about white supremacy racism. They cannot be ignorant about white supremacy racism. This is exactly it. This is not oh, what what happened in the water? I don't, oh my goodness. The fish died. Oh Lord, I never even heard of this report and if we had known I love colored people. I got a picture with Sammy Davis Jr. right? I used to do the moonwalk with the coon man say 
that's not what this was. This was, oh yeah, we knew about 40 years ago. Wow, look at that. The fish didn't even make it to five minutes. I've never seen anything like it. These niggers are taking it, boy. Woo! Clean, oh no, we're not gonna. We're not gonna clean up the water. I mean, it's niggers. I mean, that's yeah. just be more rapists in the world. We'll have a few left of them. Bravo! Keep dumping. Keep dumping. <laughs> that's what they said. This is not ignorance. This is the exact same formula in Flint, Michigan, where it was not ignorance. They did the exact same thing. We just will make sure that we don't tell the niggers that, oh man, they are gonna be messed up for generation and their children and their children's children. Woo! Glad I'm not. Do we got we got that crystal bottled spring one? Okay, yeah. Woo! Po niggers. I'm gonna go listen to a little James Brown right now. Motown. Yes. Continuing. And they just keep saying the same thing. She just has tons of examples of the exact same thing. White people knew this deliberately and knew this well in advance. Like they didn't find this out like a year before or something like that. Like they knew this decades sometimes. We planned that this is what it's going to be. Let's see. Next one. Oh, I said she had pictures. In 2003, the Department of Defense began destroying the chemical weapon stockpile, including nerve gas stored at the Aniston Army Depot. Now, am I to trust, given the attitude about Negras, am I to trust that you are going to responsibly dispose of nerve gas in an area with a lot of Negras? You're going to cart this out, use all of the proper uh, chemical industrial biohazard suits, containments, you know, give this the proper respect it deserves to cart this material as far away as possible, or is this going to, oh, there's a nigger school, let's put it there. Continuing, she says, most of the settlement funds went to lawyers and cleanup efforts, leaving the people of Aniston unemployed, impoverished, sick, mentally hobbled, and in many cases dying. They were unable to sell their homes and flee. The Army and EPA had failed to protect them and they were unsure where to turn next. And then she talks about they go to Johnny Cochran, they get the suit. And even that, I mean, she gets into the details about, you know, what they got. I highlighted that as well. Woo! Both of Harriet Washington's books, The Reason Medical Apartheid, or One Reason Medical Apartheid is in my top five, that is a huge point in that text as well. This is not ignorance. All of the different examples that she gives, Dr. Marion J. Sims, uh, the Tuskegee experiment, what they did in South Africa. I think that's one of the most important parts of the book. Whites working globally to contain the uh, anti-apartheid effort in South Africa, including uh, Madiba Nelson Mandela and looking at coming up with chemical and biological warfare to suppress them and talking about some concoction to poison Madiba. Uh, at a dinner that's in one of the uh, chapters towards the end of the book of medical apartheid you can't do all of these things and be uh, ignorant all of what she's talking about these are dedicated deliberate acts of white terrorism and she gives so many of them throughout the text uh, let's see she says Oh, here we go. Arsenic and old waste from that subsection Uh, where this is the section where they dubbed it uh, in Fort Myers, Florida, down closer to retired firefighter. They dubbed this place home Arama H O M E 
dash a dash Rama. And I feel like even that, like they make these names where they have a plan that would uh, Mr. Fuller and them talk about having a hundred year plan, a 500 year plan. This seems like that sort of thing uh, where they around 1962 we will make this Niggerville and then we'll dump all of the waste here in Niggerville. We have this plan, you know, for 70 years, we've been plotting and planning this. Uh, and they said, instead, the city dumped waste from its water treatment plant in the site's ponds and grounds, beginning in, with 25,000 cubic yards of sludge in pits extending deeper than, than the water table. The site bore no identifying signs, was unfenced, and was surrounded by African-American families. She didn't say black and brown. Surrounded by African-American families whose numbers soon grew explosively in a building boom. So you dump all this here. It's not just around a lot of black people. In fact, we're going to stuff as many niggers into this toxic area as we possibly can. See if we can as poison as many black people as possible. And she says, they, she follows it beautiful quote, all this time we bathed in that water, we cooked in that water, kids played in that water, no signs. We played cops and robbers in there, hide and seek, built clubhouses and played in the streets, said Shannon Reed, one of a family of 14 who lived in Dunbar during the 1970s. In certain spots, it was like soft clay. We called it orange slide because it was squishy and slimy. When I read that, and you hear how many times... She's listening companies, Monsanto, city of Fort Myers, all these different white people, organizations. They knew about these things. They knew that they were dumping it there. They knew that it wasn't safe. They knew that there were no signs. They knew that this was going to be an, an area where a lot of black people are going to be forced to live because they got so-called segregation. They knew all of this ahead of time. The black people that are bathing in this poisoned water, do they sound like they're really informed about racism? Do they sound like, hey, we wrote the book on environmental racism. We know all the details. Every I, every T is crossed. Every I is that I'm an expert. I don't need nobody to tell me nothing about racism. Let me go jump in the pond. Does that what it sounds like? Or does it sound like white people are the ones that are super informed? The local white, I'm sure some local white people who don't know how to spell DuPont. Don't know how to spell DDT. Never been on a college campus, but they know, oh, yeah, that's where we dump the waste over where the Negros live. You don't have to know a whole lot. You know where the Negros live. That right there will get you a whole lot in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, is there anything else I was going to get from that? Quicksand. They're called, even, words are important. If they put a sign up, even toxic. Oh, wait a minute. This is not orange slimy. This is not quicksand. This is toxic. Whoa. Stay away. Even just that. We don't even have 50 cents in the respect for your nigga life to put a sign up to just say nigga stay. What? They put the sign up. Nigga stay out of town. They would at least give you a warning. Nigga, if you can read this sign, run. If you can't read, run. James Lowen had tons of them. We'll at least put a tacky 50 cent sign up you're not even doing that so that's you want these people to be poisoned that's what you want to happen just trying to follow logic uh let's see Mm, oh she says sheared who ran for mayor in 2015 speaks for many when he decries the lack of transparency we have a waterline break and the city city is responsible to notify the public in 48 hours 
but no one notified the Dunbar community. You don't have a community. That's why no one notified the Dunbar community of the toxic sludge. That's something I wasn't aware of happening in my own backyard. Again, does this sound like someone who is an expert on racism? Dunbar's Jamar Hilliard agreed in an interview for WINK News. Is this happening in every neighborhood? No, it just seems like the low to moderate income black brown people constantly get the short end of the stick. Didn't like that metaphor. Call it what it is. Chemical and biological warfare. Whatever the garbage, whatever the junk, whatever they don't want, they give to Dunbar, Johnson said. Those people, they didn't care what happened out here. A retired truck truck hauler, Clarence Pappy Mitchell, who worked for the city of Fort Myers in the early 1960s and often dumped toxic sludge in the Dunbar section. This was a dumping area. Mitchell recalls that when a resident asked for coquina shells to harden the neighborhood's dirt roads, Mitchell's supervisor responded, Hell, ain't nobody live out there but a bunch of niggers. Take a load of sand instead. Again, one of these people sounds very informed about the system of racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works. The other person does not. I'll pause there. I had a few other notes. We'll see if the other folks that are with us, if they have comments, anything that stood out from the first portion of the reading. Can I be heard? Greetings, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, I uh, tuned in kind of late. I uh, have the habit of people (laughs) calling me right at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And, uh, but I just caught the last part of it. I kept hearing the uh, name Aniston and uh, by the uh, subject of the the book itself, I'm not surprised about uh, the uh, poisoning that was going on, especially in that place, uh, area where uh, so-called freedom riders on buses were uh, terrorized. And I suspect that's a sundown town anyway in the uh, state of Alabama. Uh, But uh, it sounds like uh, the the author of the book is basically uh, giving us more of the same valuable information on how the uh, races practice environmental racism. And I'll have something more to say uh, in the second half. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Uh, I think that is the very same uh, Aniston. Uh, with so-called uh, freedom riders. I'm not sure about their population of black people, though. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, who have comments, questions? Oh. Hi, can I be heard? Greetings, Draftomania. Uh Greetings, Gus. Um, greetings, callers and listeners. Uh, this book is amazing. Um, all the facts and information, um, I think it's very, very valuable. Um, just like her first book. Um, I just wanted to expand because, um, I was doing a lot of research on, um, 
uh, some years ago, and I continue to do research, but um, it just this book is reminding me of some of the research that I had done um, previously on some of the chemicals that were being put into the water supplies and um, different experimentations that was being done. And um, through my research, Um, there's a couple of articles um, in regards to, um, what is it, the BPA. Um, uh, the, this article says that the, uh, this neonatal exposure can disrupt ovarian, um, this is for BPA, I'm sorry, I said that before. Uh, it can disrupt ovarian development, reduce estrogen syn uh, synthesis, can permanently alter the hypo hypothalamic uh, estrogen-dependent mechanism which governs sexual behavior in females and greatly affects sexual differentiation in males, which I can safely say is what causes uh, homosexuality and, human, uh, and humans today. Instead of choosing an alternative lifestyle, the choice has been already made, already been made for them. Those with male dysfunction can also blame BPA for that as exposure to BPA was proven to be the cause in BPA factory male workers and they also experienced reduced sexual desire and overall dissatisfaction with, with their sex life. The BPA damage can go as far as altering your genetic makeup and alter your genes so uh, your future offspring can be born with a host of medical behavior complications and predetermined sexual um, preferences. So they was talking about how um, BPA can cause um, males to be feminized and uh, can cause like um, uh, sexual problems uh, for uh, men to males to be more feminized and be more prone to um, you know um, liking um, other men. And then there's another article also that's discussing the BPA can I be heard not for a second but we can hear you now oh are you there Draftomania Draftomania are you with us well I could hear you uh, but then you dropped out not sure what happened um, if you want to hang up and dial back in we can try it again um, but yeah we are not hearing you at all not hearing you at all uh, just if you want to hang up and dial back in we'll catch you on the switchboard yes anywho 605-313-5166 uh, the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate uh, let's see I did want to get in as well I was talking about Fort Meyer uh, Homorama this is where they were selling uh, the property boom of black people they had the orange slimy and quicksand and all this they wouldn't even put a sign up uh, and she says the actions of the whites in the city of Fort Meyer suggest that they knew how dangerous the sludge was in 1994 they tried to sell the polluted land to Habitat for Humanity I even thought that was especially uh, tacky because my understanding of Habitat for Humanity, that's, you know, trying to help people uh, who are maybe their first time getting a home or people who are struggling. 
uh, to own a home and this is, will be uh, a source where they can help build and own a home this is supposed to be a great program and it's oh, oh we got this toxic land oh Habitat for Humanity this will be great maybe you'll get a lot of Negras who signed up for the program and they'll get one of these toxified homes here that's great I mean she continues in 2001 they tried to say it had no sludge lies uh, primary weapon in the system of white supremacy in the city of Fort Myers attempts to pass off the toxic home Orama site in Dunbar go back farther than officials have publicly said wrote Patricia Borns in the news press in 2002 the city asked for a site assessment to provide liability protection against any hazardous waste cleanup Fort Myers then declared that no sludge existed at the site but the assessor Steve Hill Hilficker insists he had not given the site a clean bill of health that would be lying again uh, after you've known that you've dumped this place dumped toxins in this place for decades uh, to again consistently come back hey there's no sludge here there's, there's not even a sign what are you talking about there's no orange uh, sludge or toxic that's just clay uh, it's, it's totally safe we have a clean bill of health just come out and tell flagrant lies a lot of times you have a difficulty you have a scientific team that can come out and check the soil that you can pay or whatever to come out and give you the result give you accurate results that oh man this is toxic in fact it's super toxic like a run uh he says in a videotaped interview hillificker qualifies that his, uh, his was only a preliminary assessment he went on to say we did not identify any on the, anything on the ground surface but surface testing would be necessary and cleanup would indeed be necessary to excavate and properly dispose of material uh and Again, she just has more stories of the black people saying that they didn't know that they had lived in this area for 40 years and they didn't know. I just, again, point these types of things out. Black, think about that when everybody, when people come on this program, when you're talking to other non-white people, you're talking to white people, when 99% of folks insist, oh yeah, black people, they're the experts on racism. Black people, they, you know, or non-white people, period. They're the ones who know everything about racism this is the type of thing that I would like to remind folks of is what you're hearing in this book. Does this sound like you just got tons of black people who are super informed about what racism is and how it works? Not just, you know, they know about it and don't have a means to protect themselves. They don't even seem to have a clue until years, 40, 50 years after they've been permanently damaged, their children have been permanently damaged to finding out, wow, racism was being practiced against us all this time. Maybe I'm misreading the book. And conversely, the white people, they're not ignorant. They're not sitting there, oh my lord, DDTs are harmful? What? We've been poisoning the net? That's not what this is at all. Anybody else have comments they need to make sure they get in? Uh, double check, see if uh, we got Draftomania back working correctly. Let's see. Draftomania. Try again. Hmm. How interesting. I'll reload. So it might be the switchboard is stalling a little bit in pulling the hand up. We'll try that again. Let's see if it works this time. So draft the mania. Thank you for your patience and dialing back in. Did it open the did it open the line up this time? Hi, can I be heard? Got it, yes. <laughs> yeah, you still have me on mute. Uh so the next article that I pulled up was um, an article from uh, Professor Tyler 
he um, works at Exler uh, University, and he works with, uh, he's a fishery. Uh, and he took um, part in a major study in 2008 that found nearly a quarter of male roach fish taken from 51 sites on English rivers showed signs of uh, becoming female, uh, such as having eggs in their te- uh, testicles. And this is all due to uh, the chemicals uh, that were put into the water. Uh, in some rivers, all the male roach fish were found to have been feminized to a degree because of high levels of estrogen, which was used along with uh, progesterone and birth control pills to prevent ovulation. And it's also present in other drugs. And other chemicals can affect different parts of the uh, fish anatomy, including the liver, heart, and brain. Um, so they, these um, uh, chemicals uh, not only cause, um, you know, um, cancers and things like this, um, but it also causes um, feminization in males. And then it also causes um, the masculine, um, masculinization of females also. So those have been um, proven to be um, uh, causes of, uh, uh, you know, the whole confusion um, that we have going on also when it comes down to um, sexual confusion. Um, and that was just my other um, uh, part that I wanted to add to that um, because um, when I was doing the research before um, and it was saying that um, I couldn't believe that there was some saying that there was chemicals that actually caused this, but there is scientific proof um, that has shown um, that it does cause uh, those issues in males and females. And um, I am um, enjoying the book. I found it very um, hard um, to um, listen to in different parts because I'm just seeing how they just, um, you know, dump these waste on, on our communities. And then, like, I, I was thinking exactly like you said, how you were saying how, you know, the behavior components, how... Um, you know, they, they'll say that um, we're, you know, all the crime that we have in our communities and things like that, but you know, a lot of us are not, um, we're not um, uh, connecting it with the environmental, um, the environmental pollutions that, that um, happen in our communities um, either. Um, we know that uh, that uh, roaches and um, different, the leads and things like that, what that does to um uh, the health of uh, uh, kids and, you know, things like that. But then you, you, when you look at the connection between the chemicals and the um, learning disabilities and um, also the behavioral issues, how those behavior issues, how all of this stuff is basically is being caused, is being done intentionally. Um, and, just, you know, I just think that we should um, kind of look more into that, um, how these... Um, things that we can't see, how uh, that's also causing issues in, in our communities also. Well, not communities, because well, Dr. Fuller says that we don't have the communities, but in our um, uh, neighborhoods where we reside, and that's all I have to share. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, I would submit uh, humbly. Uh, we don't have neighborhoods either in systems of white supremacy. I think uh, Dr. Welsing submits uh, survival units, uh, areas where victims are warehoused, areas where victims are allowed to stay, uh, communities, neighborhoods are impossible, I would say, to forge in a system. You can't even get water. You don't have a neighborhood. You don't have a community. 
Right. And you know, but that's one other thing I wanted to say. You notice how they um, do all this gentrification um, in the neighborhoods that they, I mean, in the, the, the survival units that they want to come take over. I wonder now we see why they won't, why they are not um, gentrifying those neighborhoods, um, those those, for lack of better words, communities that um, are um, known to have all this waste and um, pollution. They're not, they're not running into those um, areas to try to gentrify those areas. And that's all I wanted to share. Much obliged, uh, Giraffomania. We actually discussed that report at the yoga retreat. Uh, young academic was there. We watched a YouTube video on the, because I believe it's a black male who put that report together on the fish and uh, how those toxins can make the male fish uh, have female sex organs and change their behavior. Uh, we watched that video and he talked about how he got in trouble and we're like, oh, we should see if we can get him on the cows. But yep, yeah, right in line with what we are talking about today. Uh, Henry in Chicago, did you have commentary, sir? Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers and listeners. My apologies for being late. Um, page 132, uh, they were talking about how um, politicians and industry seek to justify uh, putting uh, polluting companies, arguing they provide jobs. And you often notice how uh, these politicians, uh, whether it be white or non-white, Whenever they, uh, whenever they try to, you know, cater to uh, black, non-white black people, they always come with the, uh, the the issue of unemployment and jobs, and don't even tell you, you know, uh, the repercussions of uh, what these jobs entail. You know, most of these jobs can't even pay a living, you know, a living wage, uh, much less. So uh, it's a trick uh, from uh, the white, you know, white politicians. Uh, to get, you know, black people to vote for them. Um, when he was talking about Aniston uh, on page 140 about the nerve gas, um, we see that the Army is even involved in, you know, poisoning uh, areas where non-white black people live at. Uh, and what was so interesting is uh, when uh, on page 149 when the EPA ordered the Army uh but uh, ordered the army to clean it up, but the army kind of refused, you know, that's the, you know, system of white supremacy. EPA is a racist uh, organization, army's racist. So it's sort of like races don't basically turn in races. And that, that's the, that's the thing that, that you see there. Uh, you, you've seen it play out in the, in this so-called impeachment trial. We all know that, in, you know, Trump is not going to get impeached. So, um, they don't, races don't turn each other in over non-white black people. So uh, that's, that's actually no surprise there. Um, on page 141, uh, I think you mentioned this in regards to the, uh, the settlement. Uh, I thought about this uh, and was also thinking about, you know, people uh, who are, you know, fighting for so-called reparations and, you know, how this will turn out, you know, if white people dictate the terms of reparations. So it's sort of like, you know, even if we do get these reparations, it's going to be nothing, you know, and sooner or later, the, the money that we're going to get, you know, or supposedly get is going to go back to white people anyway. Um, and uh, also on page 153, um, 
the Trump administration calling these uh, organizations, you know, wolf packs and calling them, you know, wolf packs and, you know, the uh, unrefined racists they like to name call. Uh, so that's uh, that's something that, that, that that's interesting. And also, too, uh, you and I think Thomas mentioned about uh, how uh, white people are also getting poisoned uh, by uh, environmental pollution as well. And I agree with you, Gus. Uh, it, it is disproportionate with, with more with more non-white, especially non-white black people. Uh, but, you know, that's white people. White people are destroying the planet right now. Uh, they're destroying the planet, and pretty soon uh, this planet is going to be uninhabitable uh, because of white people, because of their, you know, because they they like to, you know, waylace to their toxins and, and, and all kind of other stuff that, you know, they don't care uh, what they breathe or, or even what we breathe. So uh, that's all I have right now, Mignolay. Much obliged, uh, Henry, in Chicago. Uh Cesspool, Dr. Cambon said that make the entire planet a cesspool. Uh, I did also want to make sure I got in before we got to the second audio segment. She was talking about the closer proximity of these toxic sites to tribal lands, and I thought that was important as well. It did remind me racial classifications. Racists control those racial classifications, meaning sometimes you have people who are classified as black, but they say, oh no, you're not so called native. They don't get classified as that. And you have the Elizabeth Warren, like that. I mean, whole that's a whole nother conversation. Many other books in terms of who gets described as native and who is not. Anyway, it also uh, where she said uh, only external pressure, including pressure from the National Congress of American Indians, prevented the Skull Valley Band of Utah's Goshute tribe from committing their land for the storage of spent nuclear fuel. The tribe's home is already surrounded by a chemical weapons depot. And I paused and I said, what is that? What do you even have at a chemical weapons depot? Is that they just like have stockpiles of nerve gas and plutonium and landmines? Like what is at the chemical weapons depot? Who shops at the chemical weapons depot? Has anybody here been to a chemical weapons depot? We'll have to see if we can do a yoga retreat where there's a chemical weapons depot nearby and see if we can take uh, a tour. That is that right there, a facility like that, even in my view, probably only exists in a system of white supremacy. I cannot exam. Uh, I cannot imagine why humanity, the universe would need a chemical weapons depot if we had a system of justice. Maybe I'm an idiot. With that, I'll look that up as we get to the second audio segment. This is uh, Harriet A. Washington, A Terrible Thing to Waste, Context of White Supremacy. Audio segment number two, we're picking up on chapter four. Chapter four, Prenatal Policies, Protecting the Developing Brain. Even when she is not at work, Shirley Baker the Anniston, Alabama nurse whom we met in Chapter 3, devotes her time to improving the welfare of her poisoned neighbors. She had worked for Mothers and Daughters Protecting Childhood Health before she joined her husband in Community Against Pollution, a group he founded. Together, they confront the EPA and industry to fight for her neighbors' health care and for the cleanup of their town's chemical morass. You have to fight. 
You have to cover the ground you stand on, as my grandmama used to say. But Baker is mired in a private battle as well. Because her medical background serves to heighten some anxieties about living in Aniston's hot zone, she breastfed her daughter because she wanted to give her baby the best possible start in life, conferring breast milk's many nutritional and immunological benefits. As a nurse, she knew that breastfed babies tend to be healthier and even smarter than other children. But in a cruel irony, Baker now worries that Aniston's toxins may have concentrated in her breast milk, and that nursing might have escalated her daughter's exposure, jump-starting her behavior problems and catapulting her into the special education class in which she now struggles to learn. It is not uncommon for parents in polluted communities of color to face similar dilemmas. Obeying public health urgings to breastfeed and provide a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and brain food like fish is usually the best way to give one's children a healthy physical and intellectual start. But what happens when toxic chemicals war with perinatal advice, making such mundane-sounding health mandates ambiguous or even dangerous? Food for thought? Parents find other medical advice even trickier to follow. Doctors' recommendations to give babies an early diet rich in fruits and vegetables, for example, seem like unassailable guidance. But they can expose children to brain-eroding pollutants lurking in unexpected places. After birth, black and Hispanic toddlers suffer the highest rates of exposure from soil and dust, including that found in lead-tainted housing. But for most American formula-fed babies, the greatest lead and arsenic exposure risk emanates from an astonishing source, commercial baby food. When the Environmental Defense Fund analyzed 11 years of federal data, it detected lead in 2,164 baby food samples, from grape and apple juice to carrots, teething biscuits, and sweet potatoes. One of every four apple and grape juice samples exceeded federal lead limits of five parts per billion. Consumer Reports found that even one in ten samples of organic juices harbored more arsenic levels than federal law permits. Other tests detected lead in 20% of baby food samples. That's one in every five. Formula-fed infants get most of their lead from water, but that changes as they age. Food is the greatest source of exposure for two of every three toddlers. Black children's exposure to lead is much higher than other ethnic groups and comes from their immediate environment, water, housing, dust, and local industry. But African-American and Hispanic children are exposed to lead-imbued food hazards in addition to their excess residential contamination. The Environmental Protection Agency estimated that over 5% of U.S. children ingest more than 6 micrograms per day of lead an amount that exceeds 1963's federal lead limits, though we now know that no level of lead intake is safe for children. How does all this lead end up in baby food, of all places? Scientists blame the widespread use of lead arsenate insecticides, which are now banned, but which linger in the soil for decades, poisoning the vegetables grown in it and tainting the meat of animals fed with them. Such poisoning 
including from pesticides that linger in soil and water long after they have been banned, is so widespread that nine out of every ten Americans harbor pesticides or their byproducts in their bodies. Even types of produce that we think of as healthy, such as spinach and strawberries, are also widely tainted by pesticides. For example, six out of ten samples of kale are contaminated with Dacthol, or DCPA, which the EPA labeled a human carcinogen in 1995. But others, such as avocados and sweet corn, are relatively free of such pollution, according to the Environmental Working Group's 2019 Shopper's Guide to Pesticides in Produce. Avoiding all sources of exposure of lead poisoning is incredibly important, said Dr. Aparna Bol, pediatrician at University Hospitals Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland. But the last thing I would want is parents to restrict their child's diet or limit their intake of healthy food groups. Thus, parents who strive to provide the recommended fruits and vegetables to their children face an impossible choice. The healthy food that promotes brain building also exposes their infants' brains to lead and arsenic. This is not the only manner in which parents have to choose between optimal nutrition and keeping their baby's brains safe. Breastfeeding is a very important solution to this exposure, although it is not a universal one. Usually, new mothers can avoid or at least mitigate some brain-threatening exposures by breastfeeding. However, as Shirley Baker learned to her horror, other toxic agents are present in, or even concentrated in, breast milk, raising the question of how to safely give babies the benefits of breastfeeding. A woman's doctor should be able to advise her about this during prenatal counseling and well-child care. And fortunately, Ruth A. Lawrence, M.D., in her classic Breastfeeding, a Guide for the Medical Profession, shows exactly how to avoid hazards while making an unassailable case for the mental and physical benefits of breastfeeding. Lawrence, a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Neonatology at the University of Rochester and the medical director of the Poison Center where I once worked, also details the relative popularity of different modes of breastfeeding in U.S. ethnic groups. Hispanic mothers breastfeed at the highest rate of any U.S. ethnic groups. African Americans breastfeed at a rate lower than both Hispanics and whites, but they have shown the largest increase over time. Asian rates vary greatly by ethnic subgroup, and statistics on Native American rates are too sparse to be reliable. The fact that breastfeeding allows infants to escape at least some of the lead and arsenic exposures suffered by formula-fed babies may help to explain why exclusive breastfeeding is associated with higher verbal intelligence and thicker parietal cortices, the regions of the brain governing functions such as sensation, vision, reading, and speech, as well as better cognitive performance. But fish in a mother's diet is also key, according to a 2006 paper published in the British Medical Journal. The research showed that omega-3 fatty acids in breast milk, known to be essential constituents of brain tissues, could at least partially account for an increase in the IQ of offspring. A 2013 study published in the International Journal of Epidemiology also found that when they reached adolescence, the children who were breastfed 
performed better on full IQ tests, which measure verbal IQ and performance IQ. Beyond Genetics If your brain works well enough to read a book, drive a car, and hold a job, thank your parents, and not just because they contributed its genetic scaffolding. Approximately 83% of the brain's development takes place within the last three months of pregnancy and the first two years of life. So you owe your well-functioning brain to their early care, including constant daily attention to your diet, medications, and environmental exposures before and after you were born. Contrary to conventional wisdom, genetics alone does not create a functional intellectual capacity, explains Professor of Education Girma Berhanu of the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. The fetus could have the genetic potential of a gifted child, but if the potential is not enhanced through proper nutrition and medical care, there is a possibility that the child's development could be severely retarded. The infant brain is composed of more neurons than an adult's, not fewer. Like the process of painstakingly creating a sculpture from a featureless block of marble, refining the brain involves an early and precise process of pruning, the culling of superfluous neural connections. Furthermore, a baby's cortical centers of sensation and higher thought are actually more richly connected with more excitatory synaptic action than an adult's. This helps babies to assimilate vast amounts of far-ranging information with ease. We lose this gestalt as we age, but it lingers long enough to allow an infant to amass a prodigious amount of information and skills in a short time. Within a few years, an infant progresses from a sleeping bundle to a toddler that walks, talks, and learns ten new words and asks dozens of questions a day. If her brain is properly fed, nurtured, and protected from harm, including environmental insults. Thus, your cognitive future depends on the perinatal environment you are provided. Copious research reveals that many early toxic exposures and deprivations can be disastrous for the brains of the very young. If a child's brain development is hobbled by poisons in his early environment, he may never catch up. But poor parents often lack the resources necessary to enrich and protect their children's health. As Barbara Ehrenreich observed in Nickel and Dimed, in poverty, as in certain propositions in physics, the starting conditions are everything. There are no secret economies that nourish the poor. On the contrary, there are a host of special costs, and parents of color are more likely than others to be poor. Some of the starting conditions and special costs that preferentially target poor families of color are biological, including the poisoning caused by built environments that remove much of the control over a baby's earliest exposures from the hands of her parents. For example, Industrial pollution pervades housing, schools, water, and food, even baby food, threatening the brains and IQs of children from before their birth. And environmental and public health scientists have documented how the creation of food swamps, the targeted marketing of alcohol and tobacco products, and the siting of poison-spewing industries in poor areas of color all distort 
or short-circuit early brain development, and thus intelligence, lowering IQ. As we heard in Chapter 1, the Flynn effect has documented a U.S. IQ rise of approximately three points per decade. Yet, cognitive prospects now appear less rosy for the young, who are losing ground. As international studies like the Trends in International Mathematics and Science Study, TIMSS, and the Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, suggest, as do the falling U.S. National Assessment of Educational Progress and SAT scores, U.S. students perform poorly, with less than a third, 32%, of U.S. students having attained proficiency levels in mathematics in 2009. By comparison, half of Canadians and 63% of Singaporeans demonstrated such proficiency. The causes are likely to be multifactorial and to include poorly performing schools and our immigration policies. Although many express concern that allowing immigration from countries with lower levels of educational achievement leads to poor cognitive performance in the United States, our laws exacerbate the problem when we deter immigration by the highly skilled from the wrong countries. But missing from most policy discussions of lost cognitive power among our young is a key factor. Research now shows and quantifies early damage to their vulnerable brains by toxic heavy metals, industrial chemicals, and air pollution, damage that may begin in the womb, distorting behavior as well as cognition. Even very low levels of exposure can wreak cognitive havoc. Young and Defenseless The Vulnerable Brain of a Child Chapter 3 notes that the young brain is exquisitely sensitive to chemical assault. Why? Especially when it comes to poisoning, a child is not just a mini-me. Children differ dramatically from adults in their vulnerability to environmental poisons, including how toxic substances impair their brains and the manner in which their bodies metabolize chemicals. From the moment a fertilized egg is implanted in the womb, and throughout the first few years of life, a child's nervous system experiences prodigious growth differentiation and development. Structures are formed and critical connections are established on a precise, unforgiving timetable. Toxic exposures can lower intelligence and distort behavior by destroying these brain structures or by preventing or distorting the necessary connections within them. The exposures responsible for this damage can be frank poisons, endocrine disruptors, which interfere with hormonal signals that direct fetal growth, or chemicals of unknown function. Because the child's developing body has neither mature immune protections against exposure nor the ability to repair itself, the damage may be irreversible and lead to loss of intelligence. The precise timetable of fetal development involves what Philippe Grandjean calls critical windows of vulnerability. A wealth of studies document how birth defects occur in concert with key developmental events. If a mother is exposed to a neurotoxin during a critical window, its effect on her child's brain and thinking may be disastrous. Although if the exposure happens a day later, there may be no measurable effect. 
developmental steps occur at specific times and in a particular sequence at specific locations. As Philip Landrigan and his team write, implantation of the egg occurs on gestational day 6 to 7. Organs begin forming on days 21 through 56. The neural plate forms between days 18 and 20. Arm buds appear on days 29 to 30, and leg buds follow shortly after on days 31 to 32. Testes differentiation occurs on day 43, and the palate closes between days 56 and 58. Similarly, there are critical phases of brain development, which overlap in a complex and intricately coordinated manner, with each phase offering an opportunity for chemically induced disruption and damage if it occurs at the critical time. During the last trimester of pregnancy, brain cells are formed at a rate of about 200 cells per second. The new cells must move as far as 1,000 times their own length to find their exact positions in the brain and nervous system. Every cell transmits electrical signals through its newly formed extension, or axon, and there is plenty of room for error. If they were placed end-to-end, the axons from a single budding brain would encircle the globe four times. These nerve cells communicate via electrical impulses and neurotransmitters across junctions called synapses, which function like on or off electrical switches. During the child's first month of life, it spends most of its energy building its brain, including the creation of 1,000 synapses every second. The infant's brain-building phase include making brain cells, neurulation and neurogenesis, moving cells to their proper location, cell migration, growing axons and dendrites to link nerve cells, neuronal differentiation and pathfinding, developing synapses or junctures of communication with other cells, synaptogenesis, refining or pruning the synapses, naturation, and forming the insulating tissue that surrounds nerve cells and enables rapid, efficient communication among them, gliogenesis or myelination. Early exposures to chemicals like lead and phthalates, dibutyl phthalate and bis-2-ethylhexyl phthalate, can interfere with these tasks, harming the brain in ways that become apparent only in later life. As a nasty grace note, Many chemicals that harm the budding brain harm the developing reproductive system as well. Many insist that a physiologic filter called the blood-brain barrier is effective enough to bar such poisons from assaulting and harming the developing brain. But the BBB is imperfect. It helps to protect the brains of adults from harmful exposures, but it has not been fully formed in infants. Moreover, some common environmental chemicals, like arsenic, can damage it beyond functionality, even after it matures. As a result, some exposures have been demonstrated to be three to ten times more toxic to children than to adults. In other cases, a chemical that may not harm the adult brain at all can cause devastating injury to a child. Not only are children more sensitive to many chemicals that damage the brain, they are exposed to higher doses, pound for pound, than adults. One part per billion, PPB, of a chemical like benzene ingested from water, 
air, or food, causes greater exposure to a child than an adult for multiple reasons. A child younger than six months old drinks seven times more water per pound of body weight than the average U.S. adult. Children between one and five years old eat three to four times more per pound of body weight than the average adult. Infants at rest breathe twice the volume of air, pound for pound, than resting adults. Children two years old or younger have twice the relative body surface as an adult. Because absorption through the skin is a common root of many poisons, such as aromatic hydrocarbons, this multiplies the youngest's exposure. Children explore the world by putting things in their mouths, and a bad taste doesn't necessarily discourage them from doing so. Just doing what children normally do can increase doses of chemicals. Hand-to-mouth transmission while crawling near the source of many toxins on the floor and ground exposes them to chemicals that adults may evade. For specific environmental poisons, the differential effects on children can be dramatic. In Chapter 2, I explained that the same dose of lead that causes lifetime IQ deficits in two-year-olds produces no effect in adults. Many other common environmental exposures are much more dangerous for children than adults. For example, nitrate. Prolonged exposure to tap water with 20 ppm parts per million nitrate can kill an infant but has no observable effect on an adult. Mercury. Exposure in the womb at 100 ppb parts per billion that's equivalent to one drop in 118 bathtubs, significantly increases learning deficits, while an adult exposed to that same dose suffers no measurable effect. Radiation Children exposed to radiation have a much higher incidence of cancer than adults exposed to the same dose. PCBs Levels of fetal PCB exposure that cause learning deficits that persist through adolescence cause no measurable effects on adults. In Chapter 2, I documented the neurological devastation wreaked by heavy metals like lead, which alone drains each U.S. birth cohort of 23 million IQ points annually. But other prenatal threats, like poor nutrition, sap cognitive power. So does tainted air, as well as exposures to PCBs, phthalates, pesticides, pathogens, endocrine disruptors, alcohol, tobacco, and other toxic industrial chemicals. Some of these risk factors may be unfamiliar, but they are key to understanding the exquisite vulnerability of the young brain. Endocrine disruptors, ED, for example, change the development of the fetus in the womb by interfering with thyroxine and other hormonal signals that direct fetal growth. ED chemicals harm brains by mimicking natural hormones. And since the body can't distinguish these chemicals from natural hormones, it responds to the stimulus, often with disastrous consequences. Exposure to ED chemicals that mimic growth hormones, for instance, can result in gigantism. Alternatively, exposure to ED chemicals can trigger physical responses at inopportune times. Certain chemicals, for example, trigger insulin production when it is not needed, which can cause ketosis. Other endocrine disruptors 
block the effects of a hormone to excite or inhibit the endocrine system and cause insulin overproduction or underproduction. There are many endocrine disruptors, but the most infamous example is diethylstilbestrol, or DES. This synthetic hormone was prescribed as a treatment for conditions such as breast and prostate cancers. As Robert Myers's riveting book, DES, The Bitter Pill, recounts, doctors gave DES to pregnant patients between 1940 and 1971 in hopes of reducing the risk of pregnancy complications and miscarriage. Instead, DES crossed the placenta during pregnancy, and girls and women whose mothers took the drug are 40 times more likely to develop a rare vaginal cancer called clear cell carcinoma. The Food and Drug Administration subsequently withdrew its approval, and later studies showed that DES can cause a myriad of other medical disorders, including reproductive disease and infertility in both daughters and sons. Moreover, DES shows an especially insidious aspect of some toxic agents. The ability to damage the exposed person's genes in a manner that is passed on to her children. This illustrates, yet again, the intersectionality of environmental and genetic risk factors. Making matters worse, the effects of some endocrine disruptors like DES, including diminished intelligence, lowered fertility, and aberrant behavior, are not detected for years or even decades after the exposure. Studies also link endocrine disruptors to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and the burgeoning of autism spectrum disorders, as well as other brain abnormalities that translate into lowered intelligence and lower IQ scores. The endocrine disruptor is just one class of what Harvard environmental health professor Philip Grandjean calls brain drainers. These are chemical thieves of cognition that Grandjean who is the head of the Environmental Medicine Research Unit at the University of Southern Denmark, as well as a professor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, says lower intellectual potential in exposed people, especially children. It's likely that other prenatal brain-affecting chemicals exist, but have not yet been recognized as such. But those we are aware of already pose a staggering threat to the brains and behavior profiles of exposed U.S. children, especially children of color, who are most often thrust into the proximity of brain drainers, even before birth. Some insist that these chemicals are not dangerous, or that they are present in concentrations too low to pose a health risk. Often, critics point to a lack of evidence that these substances are harmful. But absence of evidence sometimes reflects not harmlessness, but a research vacuum. You'll remember that unlike the European Union, where the precautionary principle reigns and chemicals used near humans must first be tested for safety, most U.S. chemicals are not investigated for their effects on human health until after an injury is suspected. So those who claim the chemicals are safe because no evidence of their injuries exist are wrong. Until proper tests are performed, we simply cannot know their effects. Moreover, researchers and environmentalists speak of the difficulty in obtaining funding to investigate some exposures, 
an obstacle that is especially difficult to overcome in cases when exposure hinges on racial identity rather than economics. Unfortunately, even after U.S. tests are performed, misunderstandings concerning toxicity, and even mythologies concerning poisoning, are rife. This means that the environmental harms to young children and fetuses have been dramatically underappreciated. For one thing, an exposure adjudged safe, because it presents in amounts far too small to affect an adult, can transform an infant's brain development, his mental and behavioral functioning, and the course of his life. Heavy Metal Mortality Vanished Children In Chapter 2, I described how PCBs, as well as common heavy metals and metalloids like mercury, arsenic, and lead, wreak intellectual devastation on children of color, especially African Americans. But they do more than stultify existing children. They also kill unborn ones. A 2017 report exposed hundreds of excess deaths of fetuses in Flint, Michigan, between 2013 and 2015, after the city switched to lead-poisoned Flint River water. Health economists Daniel Grossman and David Slusky found that between 218 and 276 more children should have been born, and that these missing children succumbed to fetal death and miscarriages caused by waterborne lead exposure, a crisis that left so many dead that the city's 2014 fertility rate plummeted. The water purity change was restricted to a specific period, allowing clear comparisons of Flint's fertility and fetal health rates before and after the switch, when fetuses were exposed to tainted water in utero for at least one trimester. Because Flint was the only city in the area that switched its water supply, studies could meaningfully compare data with surrounding cities. No other Michigan cities recorded such a drop in fertility. Even so, this count of missing babies is probably significantly underestimated because the investigation included only fetal deaths reported within hospitals and did not include abortions or miscarriages that occurred before 20 weeks gestation. Flint was not alone. In 2013, the economists also found lead-driven fetal deaths rose as much as 42% and birth rates fell in Washington, D.C. during the years 2007 and 2008, the same period during which the city endured its own lead crisis as levels rose in its drinking water. Lead levels in the District of Columbia had also peaked in 2001, then fell again in 2004 when public health correctives were put in place to protect pregnant women. The children born during the periods of high pollution suffered growth abnormalities, an increase in the prematurity rate, and lowered birth rates. By studying which neighborhoods were most affected, researchers were able to correlate the density of lead plumbing to both the markers of maternal blood lead levels and lead poisoning in children. The babies that survived didn't emerge unaffected. The publicity about the nation's racially stratified lead-tainted water makes the news that lead sabotages the brains of infants of color dismaying, but not completely surprising.
Doctors tell parents to avoid exposing their children to lead when possible. A clear strategy, but one that is hard to follow when lead's presence in housing is hidden, as it was to the residents in East Chicago, Indiana, or when parents are actually steered to lead-tainted housing by health agencies, as they were in Baltimore. Context of white supremacy. That will do it for the second audio segment. We'll pick up next week. We are still in Chapter 4. Mr. Fuller, he has an audio segment, Neely Fuller Jr., where he is talking to another victim of racism, and he is explaining how white supremacy works globally, where sometimes it may appear as though certain non-white people. He was talking about uh, the country of China. He was saying China is not subject to racist white supremacists. And then he used that same word uh, in answering his own question. He said, it's, oh, they, they, they are being steered in that direction. And that was where the whole conversation uh, ended. But racists do a lot of steering non-white people in incorrect directions in directions where they or other non-white people will be harmed and they say oh I don't I don't know about that man that sure is that's terrible lead hmm. uh, the number is 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you have comments, questions, suggestions if you didn't get to participate after the first audio segment you should dial in uh, and get your hand up now, don't wait till the end so we can make sure that we get to you early so that you can share any thoughts or observations uh, all the folks uh, who dialed in with a hand up, Henry in Chicago retired firefighter uh, mania, anyone else line should be open proceed, Thomas in New York Yes, I have uh, two questions, two questions based on what I've been hearing. I think I know the answers to them, but I'm, I would just ask just for confirmation. Uh, there is no standard lead testing for children anywhere in this part of the world in public school in the public school systems, correct? Uh, I'm not sure if they have a program. I'm not sure if they have like a standardized program to check uh, lead levels in the school or standard because you said standardized. Like, you know, I'm not aware of a standardized. Yeah, I I mean, for all public school children. Yeah, I'm not aware of a a standardized program that tests for lead. If somebody is, they can share that information. And I think I'm I think I'm correct in saying there's no such thing as any lead testing in any. uh, physical examinations in this part of the world. In other words, that's something you have to request, request yourself and, and go to maybe go to a specialized uh, environment. It's, it's not in, it's not in anybody's physical examination where they test for lead. Is that correct? I don't have children. So anyone here with a child, they can speak up, but I'm not. I think well, not just, not just children. This particular question is not just for children. I, I mean, for anybody who wants to take a physical exam, uh, I, I don't think it's anywhere where it's standard where the, your, your, your level of, of lead poisoning is examined. I don't believe Would that so. be correct. 
Don't believe so. Okay. Okay. Wow. <laughs> that in the combination of this book. I mean, it's just like the the the, the white supremacists have a a uh racist antidote for everything. Uh there's an element that can be exposed to whereas your sexual your sexual uh uh Position would be changed, uh, and or interest sexually can be changed. Uh, there's an racist antidote slash poison that your uh, mental capabilities can be changed to a more cr- criminal uh, sort of uh, uh, reaction, uh, retardation. Uh, it's amazing, and uh, it's amazing. Uh, this book is something that should be on everybody's uh, bookshelf. That's for sure, uh, because it makes logical sense. Also, going along with something called a global system of racist white supremacy, that would be something that. Uh, white people who practice racism do on a refined a refined level uh meaning improvement that i can destroy and or control millions with less effort than prior to let's say a hundred years ago and those are just some thoughts running in my mind by listening thank you much obliged retired firefighter other folks who are with us do you have questions thoughts observations can I be heard Henry in Chicago uh, yeah in response to uh, retired firefighter I know here in Chicago and other uh, districts uh, uh, in the Chicagoland area they did do less lead testing in the schools however that was only in response to, uh, you know, to people or parents uh, who had children uh, in these schools and also in response to the, you know, Flint water crisis, because this is when the, the lead testing had started, um, when the uh, Flint water crisis uh, became, uh, you know, popular or became known uh, to the rest of the nation. But then also, too, you know, uh, they can test the lead, but, you know, what are they going to do about it? They still haven't fixed, because uh, I, I believe they found uh, they found plenty of schools with uh, exposed uh, lead, and needless to say, uh, majority of those schools were populated by non-white black children. So, And uh, these are tests that's been done, you know, for like the last couple of years, and they're still finding, you know, lead levels. Uh, in regards to uh, in regards to personal testing of lead of children, I'm not I'm not sure about that, but I just wanted to respond on the uh, lead testing uh, here in the uh, for the Chicago uh, public schools. So uh, that's all I had. I mean, my line. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Uh, other folks who are with us, if you have observations, thoughts to share, proceed.
give folks a few moments to get their thoughts or notes together. Go through some of my notes for the second portion of the reading from chapter four. Let's see. It's chapter two. Wow. We just did all that uh, conversing on breastfeeding. Andrea Freeman was on the program, uh, skimmed chemical and biological warfare to get black mothers to use formula, not breastfeeding. We just talked about all of that just in the archives. Uh, She writes, Baker is mired in a private battle as well because her medical background serves to heighten some anxieties about living in Aniston's hot zone. She breastfed her daughter because she wanted to give her baby the best possible start in life. Conferring breast milk's many nutritional and immunological benefits as a nurse liquid gold. That was the metaphor Professor Freeman used as a nurse. She knew that breastfed babies tend to be healthier and even smarter than other children. But in a cruel irony, Baker now worries that Aniston's toxins may have concentrated in her breast milk and that nursing might have escalated her daughter's exposure jump-starting her behavior problems and catapulting her into the special education class in which she now struggles to learn. How all of what I said the first time around, how all of this chemical biological warfare impacts the behavior of children in particular, and then they turn around and blame the child and say, oh man, black people are just ignorant, the bell curve, and oh man, they're just unruly. And like I said, we need resource officers. You know, they're not just unruly. They're, they're poorly behaved. See, they don't have any impulse. And we need personal responsibility. That's what they'll come back and wag a finger in your face and tell you that you're a bad parent and put you in special education. It's no, I'm a victim of chemical and biological warfare. My brain has been damaged, maybe permanently. And then they get the mother, the mother to feel bad. Like, oh, my Lord, I did this trying to do the healthy thing. And you have so many elements of white supremacy working against you, you can end up just being overwhelmed. Uh, again, thinking back now, does this sound like someone who is an expert on racism? Like, oh yeah, I knew about the dangers and what they were doing and how that would impact my breast milk. And I knew, I was informed about all of that. Uh, next. <clears throat> Ending up in the food. I thought that was important as well. Talking about lead. Uh, scientists blame the widespread use of lead arsenate insecticides which are now banned but which linger in the soil for decades poisoning the vegetables grown in it and tainting the meat of animals fed with them even types of produce that we think of as healthy such as spinach and strawberries also widely tainted by pesticides one this reminded me of Dr. Ruby Lathan she was on the program well, she's been on the program many times uh, and should be back uh, soon Uh, to discuss this very subject matter and we were talking about uh, is it important to eat organic you know is that worth it is that just a waste of money is that another one of these white gimmicks Uh, and she said what you know we're not talking about the impact of the pesticides and do you really want that in your body is that good for you and the amount of poisons and toxins that are being dumped on us anyway and trying to minimize that as much as possible Uh, we were at the retreat uh, Chef Nadira, who should be coming with us to Toronto, Canada, May 21 through the 24th. Uh, she, in one of the cooking workshops, she talked about having a 
vinegar wash to try to get the pesticides and residue off produce getting organic if you can and then that's a procedure to try to get some of that nonsense off because it can be dangerous uh, and just the health impact uh, and I specifically when she talked about in this section even healthy foods such as spinach and strawberries both of those Dr. Lathan she mentioned the list it's the dirty dozen clean 15 strawberries spinach are both uh, on the dirty dozen uh, and that's a list of produce that they have that uh, retains an especially high amount of the pesticides, toxins that are sprayed uh, on the produce. So this is produce that you want to avoid uh, unless you're going to get it organic. And even if you get it organic, even that organic from a source that you trust, uh, that's where, again, where I talked about if you live in Seattle, where they'll have farmers markets all over, you can go to the source where they're growing the spinach and they have fresh spinach when they have fresh uh, strawberries in the summer times where you can go and see where the stuff is grown. You can meet the people that are growing and picking the produce uh, directly, judge the integrity of the produce yourself. You can talk to them about, you know, what they use, what they don't use, all of that. You might not have access to that. Uh, if you live in what they call these food swamps and all the rest of where black people stay or warehoused. Uh, but she talked about all that. I uh, said for six out of 10 samples of kale are contaminated with uh, Dacthal, or DCPA, which the EPA labeled as a human carcinogen in 1995, but others such as avocados and sweet corn are relatively free. I believe avocados and sweet corn are on the uh, clean 15 list, which is the opposite. These are fruits and produce vegetables that uh, either are not sprayed at all or very, very little. Uh, And I think avocados are on that list. I think there's some other fruits and vegetables on there as well, but both of these are prominent online. Dr. Lathan talked about them. I believe on her most recent visit. Uh, Let's see. Next. Breastfeeding is a very important solution to this exposure, although it is not a universal one. Usually new mothers can avoid or at least mitigate some brain threatening exposures by breastfeeding. Again, when I asked Professor Freeman, suspected white supremacist author of Skimmed, I asked her now, white people deliberately that was the same thing in that book white people weren't ignorant white people deliberately working to get black mothers to not breastfeed and to use natural formula is that chemical and biological warfare she couldn't come up with an answer continuing to read uh However, as Shirley Baker learned to her horror, other toxic agents are present in or even concentrated in breast milk, raising the question of how to safely give babies the benefits of breastfeeding. A woman's doctor should be able to advise her about this during prenatal counseling and well child care. care. And fortunately, Ruth A. Lawrence, MD, in her classic Breastfeeding, a guide for the medical profession, shows exactly how to avoid hazards while making an unassailable case for the mental and physical benefits of breastfeeding for white mothers. That's the line that should be added because that is not the case for black moms. They do not encourage that. We've had black mothers who called in, wrote in about their experience. They're certainly not trying to help with that on uh, the job. You'd probably be more likely to be accused of being uh, a crackhead mom. Uh, and maybe we should take that child from you. Why are you having child anyway? You, you ghetto queen, no count trying to take advantage of the system. Having more of those super predator babies. Uh, let's see next. Oh, and then again, 
Now, I said chemical and biological warfare, and then she writes of African-Americans breastfeed at a rate lower than both Hispanics and whites, but they have shown the largest increase over time. That is great. Hopefully that can uh, continue. There can be more promotion. Things, behaviors can be changed with information, certainly. Prenatal yoga instructor myself, be a part of the change, they say. But I mean, that right there, that is the success of white supremacy racism natural processing to get black people black parents to totally abandon that that's again Dr. Wells when she talked about you know man having respect for the process of procreation and all that that entails learning about the dangers and the best way the healthiest options what to do do we want to breastfeed and blah 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 and what to eat like I said are we living in an environment that's you know at least we can the child can drink a, a, a cup from the, the sink and not die in the next month or have brain damage or whatever else. I mean, it's a lot to consider. Uh, let's see. The fact that breastfeeding allows infants to escape at least some of the lead and arsenic exposures suffered by formula fed babies may help to explain why exclusive breastfeeding is associated with higher verbal intelligence and thicker parietal cortices the regions of the brain governing functioning such as sensation, vision, reading, and speech, as well as better cognitive performance. Again, all of that. White people are not ignorant about this. They've not been ignorant about the immense benefits of breastfeeding for some time now. You can't, well, you can use your logic, use your brain computer. Hopefully uh, you were breastfed and so your brain is working well. You're not contaminated with lead and you can think well, but if you have a campaign using pet milk black people black parents are encouraged oh no you don't want to breastfeed use this formula deliberately discouraged from doing this and then you know all the health benefits and then they come around and encourage it and it's white women white babies white women yes breastfeed yes we'll get the lactation room for you and all these breast pumps and everything else wow with all of the benefits and can even help stave off some of the environmental poison is that chemical and biological warfare to get that black mother to not breastfeed just trying to follow logic uh, let's see the fetus could have the genetic potential of a gifted child but if the potential is not enhanced through proper nutrition and medical care there is a possibility that the child's development could be severely retarded just immediately reminded me of uh, Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, that we have been greatly retarded. We don't get to live, you know, or generally speaking, black people, we don't have communities and neighborhoods. We are warehouse uh, allowed to reside in areas, not someplace where you can go and get organic kale and organic spinach and organic strawberries that are not uh, sullied in poisons that will destroy your brain and ability to think and have a high quality life. You can go get fresh organic produce that's subsidized uh, that costs about as much as what's on the dollar menu at McDonald's because that is what's subsidized. We want to make sure that people have healthy food that is going to have them be strong and full of vitality so you can live a high quality life. You know, we got fresh carrots and fresh avocados and sweet corn and spinach collard greens and yams and you know whatever else uh no that's why we got you know cheetos the liquor store i so love that she kept saying the liquor store 
uh, as well, but greatly retarded. We've been retarded in more ways than we even know, including uh, the liquor store. I so, so appreciated that she kept mentioning that. Before I get to that, she said, uh, she mentioned Barbara Einrichs, uh, Nickel and Dimed. I read that book. That was so popular. I believe I might be wrong. You can check. I think that was on Oprah's book club talking about reading, but I read that book. Uh, it was a black female uh, friend of mine. She loved that book. I think she heard about it from Oprah. I'm not, you know, just in, not being disparaging of Oprah Winfrey. I'm just saying, I think this white woman uh, owes Oprah Winfrey some of her claim to fame. Anyway, I read this book. This book is about a white woman pretending to be poor. Uh, she's an author. She quits her job and she takes like 30. I'm explaining all of this because I highlighted this. I was kind of offended, like in a book that's so serious, like she would include a text like this to support her. And the book doesn't even like she had, uh, and let me give you a little bit more background about the book. So this white woman, she quits her job as like a writer, professional white woman, suspected racist. And for like a specified amount of time, like 30 days, or we'll say it's 30 days just for argument's sake. Could have been longer, shorter, whatever. 30 days. Uh, like the guy who pretended black like me. Remember, he blackens his face. He's going to go out and play nigger for a little while. She's going to go out and get temp jobs, like working cleaning houses and whatever it is, and just see if she can live off of that wage for 30 days and see what happens. So she goes and is cleaning people's toilets and that sort of thing. And she talks about the uh, females that she works with sometimes it'll be some non-white females so-called Latinas uh, she'll talk about what they're eating and their experience and how grueling it was and trying to live off of this little bit of money and one time she got sick and she had to get her medication and she cheated and used her uh, white woman resources to go get medication and get a real meal and I mean it's just Comparing that with this, like this white woman going out to pretend, like I said, this is written in like the 2000s, like, oh, it's so hard. And what if I didn't have these? It's just a really lame book in comparison to how good this book is. It's a really lame book. So to have that included, uh, this white woman's pretend story. And so she says uh, she's quoting from that book, Nickel and Dime, Nickel and Dime in poverty, as in certain propositions in physics starting conditions are everything there are no secret economies that nourish the poor on the contrary there are a host of special costs so all of that just to get that one little bitty paragraph from this white woman who garners this information by pretending to be poor for 30 days and then she adds not in quotations and parents of color are more likely than others to be poor that's not even a conclusion that Barbara Einreich included. Like she doesn't even have a quote from her that she can add because that's not even that white woman suspected racist perspective. That's why I said I was, I was almost offended. That's probably not the best word, but I was certainly not pleased. It was, uh, it did not sit well on my palate for a book that I think has such information like Ugh, to even have that. And again, white people have, or their white editors often, you know, can, in Oh yeah, this would be a good one to include. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, continuing environmental and public scientists have documented how the creation of food swamps, the targeted marketing of alcohol and tobacco products, say it twice, the targeted marketing of alcohol and tobacco products and the sitting of poison spewing industries in poor areas of color, all distort or short circuit early brain development and thus intelligence lowering IQ. I so love that she consistently includes alcohol and tobacco as a part of environmental racism and brain damaging toxins.
some idiot does say sobriety would be best often. And then she says it again uh, before the chapter concludes this week uh, about alcohol specifically. Uh, It came up a few times. I was so appreciative. Uh, I'll pause there, though, to see if anybody else has comments that they wanted to make sure they get in before we wrap up this section, this week's portion of the reading. Any other comments, observations? Everybody satisfied? Soon folks are grand. Where was it at? She said. Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, Thomas uh, texted me and, and stated something about uh, he he may be uh, uh, what you call him. You can't. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. I, I thought I was trying to talk earlier, but I was I thought I was muted, but I think it was just the headphones. And then when I switched headphones, I think you heard me in the background. I thought I was muted, but um, I apologize for that. Um, this is the um best book we've done in a, a while you know oh in fact i like that it's all facts really not all opinions it's, it's all facts um i call it factual bombs you know that all whites are racist um in my research the money that we use is um fake it's backed by bombs and bullets not gold and silver um take the money or take a missile you know they print it up to fix their problems. They call it a budget. Or they could just pass a bill through legislation requiring the money to fix problems. You know, this is all due to racism, period. Um, they could have been fixed this problem, but they don't care because um, it affects us at a higher percentage, probably such a high percentage that it's not even worth fixing it. Uh, I would say just simply $1 trillion over 20 years to make U.S. polluting and chemical-free, simply print it up and send it to the states. But this is done by design. Uh, Scientific eugenics practices chemical warfare. Lead-laced apple and grape juice, not just the water, the dust, and the paint. You pay for monthly uh, rent or mortgage. Uh, but also the juices that the doctors tell us to make our children grow up strong and healthy that cost a lot of money. Uh, and they give us wit to make sure they give us lead juice and metal cans for free. <laughs> you know, it's just um, a genius plan. Um, just hearing it, you know, um, the effects on the fetus, uh, white babies. Whites have more babies with birth defects than blacks, but by percentage, Blacks have a higher percentage of children born with birth birth defects. And that goes as well as as children's child mortality. Whites have more child mortalities. However, we have a higher percentage, and that's all done due to a lot of these chemicals, I believe. Um, I think she said one PPP of benzene. I believe that's like a teaspoon in an Olympic-sized pool. You know, that will affect small children. Um, They got, you know... Daddy's poisoning us and mommy's misteaching us at the same time. Um, Europe does testing on every chemical before introducing it to their mostly white public. Um, The only way to test chemicals on humans without having a human to actually test them on is to use HeLa cells, uh, which was stolen from 
of course, Henrietta Lacks, a black person, right here in America, but they don't use that here. Um, just 13% of the blacks here, and that made whites not meet those standards, you know. Um, that tells you how dedicated they are. Because, um, I mean, we, it's only been us and them here for a long time, um, until recently. Um, and um, the top of, at the top of all of that, anything done in Europe scientifically, you know, the U.S. is very knowledgeable of and vice versa. So if Europe does test a chemical and they put it out in a journal, of course the United States scientists have access to that journal. So it's not even like they they don't know. They can't even say they didn't know, you know, in my opinion. I mean, why not? Thank you, Gus. Much obliged. I think she said, I mentioned that she's presented so many um, points of fact, uh, pointing that out instances where white people at different companies Monsanto and Solucia and all these different entities Bayer uh, where they were informed the whites in Fort Myers either whites in a specific city where they were doing dumping uh, and toxic poisoning of black people Flint Michigan uh, Baltimore she's mentioned lots of it it's been tons of examples of that where the white people they were very informed about what they were doing targeting terrorizing black people uh, the alcohol, the other mentioned, she said, other prenatal threats like poor nutrition, sap cognitive power, so does tainted air, as well as exposures to PCBs, pesticides, pathogens, endocrine disruptors, alcohol, tobacco, and other toxic industrial chemicals. Consistently. Say it twice. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. With that, we'll wrap up. We'll be here tomorrow, same time uh, for the book club, or excuse me, for neutralizing workplace racism. We'll be here next Thursday for the book club as we continue with uh, A Terrible Thing to Waste, the great Harriet A. Washington. Immaculate work. So happy we're reading it. Uh, if you are listening to the archives and you have comments, questions, you can email untiljustice at gmail.com. We have a ways to go so you can you know, drop your thoughts, opinions as we continue to plug along through the text. Uh, much obliged to everyone participating. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. With that, I will say again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle passenger or driver uh, just trying to do as much as we can to remain safe under conditions of white supremacy in addition to being sober and buckled up if you are driving you are not on the cell phone again just trying to do the little things stay far far away from the Daniel Geiger Daniel Holtzclaws Amber Geigers of the known universe with that creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim.
Shut my up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.